Live. You're tuning to Cosmic Children. I'm your host, Kevin. And today I have a very interesting guest in the studio with me. He runs a special sort of club in Singapore, which I find to be very uh, intimidating on at, at first glance because it's something that I have no conception of. So, Mr. Brandon, what is this club that you run? Uh, well, I, I should say more accurately... I uh, used to run because of COVID. I haven't really run. It's a, it's a tech meetup. Uh, so it hasn't run since, well, the lockdown essentially. So m- maintain the website, but that's about it. Uh, Daps Dev Club is the name. Uh, D-A-P-P-S-D-E-V dot org. That's mm-hmm. the, the domain. Yeah. Uh, so whatever we've done is up on there. It's a, I would say, an educational uh, meetup more than anything else. So... What I noticed uh, back when I started it was that um, like everywhere else, there were blockchain meetups popping up, but there were only maybe uh, a a few of them that were focused on, you know, the tech aspects of it. Um, But in Singapore, you had zero. They were all focused on how to invest your money in in ICOs or or something like that, which I felt was a bit of, uh, you know, missing the point. Like, sure, that's what a lot of people were interested in and Mm. they were catering to the demand. Mm. But then there's this whole tech aspect of it that was just completely ignored. So I've decided to fill that gap. And how long ago was this when you you first founded the, the club? I can't remember actually. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to. I'll have to go and check. So gotcha. maybe I want to say 2018. 2018. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it is the DADC, which stands for the Decentralized, decentralized Application Apps. Development yeah. Club. Yeah, yeah. So what is a decentralized application? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Let's. Uh, okay. So when when you say go to Google and you yep. do a search on on it, right? Uh, what you type in your laptop, right? It gets transmitted uh, to a single server or a set of servers that mm. is controlled by Google, mm-hmm. which is, uh, for all intents and purposes, a single entity, mm. right? And then that does whatever it needs to do, looks in its database of all its search results that it has already crawled before, and then it sends you back the result. The key part of that is that there is uh, one client you mm-hmm. and one server in that interaction. Mm-hmm. Well, there might be more servers, but you know they're controlled by one entity. So that architecture is a client-server architecture. Okay. And it's by its nature centralized. A single entity controls mm. it. And um, so, okay, so let's let's talk about Bitcoin briefly. So they invented mm. this concept called a blockchain, mm-hmm. which meant. Uh, if I were to super duper summarize it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> think of it as BitTorrent is the file sharing, yep. right? So Bitcoin does that with money and they achieve it through um, decentralization. So you've got this peer-to-peer network, mm. but for the first time uh, compared to any other digital currency uh, attempts, I should say, they... They managed, uh, the inventor of it managed to figure out a way such that it was in the economic incentive of those in the peer to peer network to not cheat mm. the rules because there's, you know, the what's in it for them yep. or what's in it for me yep. actually worked out for them. 
And the way it does this is it creates an immutable ledger. Immutable meaning, um, in this case, you can only add new entries to the end of it. You can never delete or modify prior um, entries in that mm. same ledger. So by ensuring there's an economic uh, incentive for all participants in the network to maintain this ledger mm -hmm. and maintain that immutable rule, they were able to use those entries to encode transactions where you couldn't spend the same unit of currency mm. in one, in, you know, in one place and then pretend you haven't spent it and spend it somewhere, somewhere else. Yep. So, okay. So that was the, I mean, <laughs> I could spend a long time talking about that, but let's go to the, you know, the next part, which is decentralized applications. So, um, I think about five years after, after Bitcoin, uh, came up, uh, with this concept of an immutable, immutable ledger on a peer to peer network, um, et cetera, all these, all these innovations, there was a sort of, um, a flurry of innovation, but they all stuck to that same basic concept. And mm. then Ethereum came along mm. with, um, probably a, um, I would say a world's first, um, maybe not in terms of like the idea, but a world's first in terms of implementation where they, where the, where the inventor, uh, mm -hmm. so this guy is not pseudonymous, uh, or anonymous, like the creator of Bitcoin. Everyone knows who he is, Vitalik Buterin. He came up with this concept where, um, you could combine this immutable ledger concept in a peer to peer network. Instead of just encoding currency transfers, you could, you could, uh, write full blown programs in it. So Bitcoin also had the concept of a programs, but they were uh, of programs, but they were so limited that they could effectively only do, uh, currency transfers and not much else. A few yep. other things, but yep. not much else. Um, with Ethereum, you could write what is called Turing complete programs. Turing complete. Yeah. Programs. Turing, okay. Alan Turing. Yep. Yeah. So that's some. Mathy, sciencey <laughs> thing, yeah. uh, but basically it means that in theory you could write any uh, computer program. So it's like considered a complete system, right? Mm. And so that sort of exploded the space, right? Yeah. So you could now write any sort of program you wanted and put it on a blockchain. And because it was on a blockchain, um, every time you wrote a program, that program itself was immutable. Right. The data that it stored was also immutable, but could be the modified mm. by new transactions. Right. So in the same way that your account balances mm. can be modified in a Bitcoin blockchain, you yep. could then modify data by adding new transactions. So this created a type of, uh, I would say a concept, uh, or an implementation of a concept called smart contracts. Mm. Uh, which is, uh, like a very confusing name because it is, <laughs> I like to say this a lot. It is neither smart nor a contract, nothing to do with a legal contract. And it's not really smart. Um, yeah, it, it, I think, I think, right. Um, if I were to sort of rename it, I would just call it a blockchain code or something a like blockchain or, code. Okay. Yeah. Or blockchain program. Right. Mm -hmm. But this is the industry term for it, a smart contract. Okay. So now we can answer your question, right? <laughs> that's the, that's the backdrop. Okay. So what is a decentralized application? Yeah. Um, when your client, so your laptop, yep. right? Instead of connecting to a server that's run by a single entity, it talks to a smart contract that is on a blockchain network. 
And because it is decentralized, the way that the code, well, the, the data that is stored on the smart contract and the code that is executed on the smart contract, they are both, um, they're not controlled by or, you know, a single entity can't modify how it works, mm. what the data is in it. Um, it can't just say arbitrarily decide to stop it. It will continuously operate according to the rules that are contained within the code. Yep. So that gives it a lot of interesting properties. So uh, the single biggest category of decentralized applications, or I should say smart contracts, um, is, is, a, is a currency, right? So mm -hmm. you may have heard this term ERC20, mm -hmm. or you may have heard this term ICO uh, around 2019. Mm -hmm. So that was when a lot of um, people created their own currency and then they sold it um, in a decentralized way using smart contracts. Um, and it, it just sort of, uh, basically people were creating programmable money. Programmable right. money. Yeah, okay. So they could just write some code and boom, you've got your own code. You've got your own money. Like you could always do that yeah. by, you know, creating your own version of Bitcoin, right? Or, or any other cryptocurrency, but it was a lot more involved, right? Whereas now you could just piggyback off an existing blockchain, which had the smart contract capability. Yep. And, and by doing so, you could just, focus on the aspect of it that you wanted to create, which yep. in this case is a currency. Yep. And then, you know, you, you can do that. Um, and the interesting thing is you can set your own properties, right? So it's like you've got your own toolbox. Let's say you're an economist and you wanted to create a ideal uh, currency system that you didn't have to base upon the rules um, that you know, just because of history, this is how money was done. Mm. You could invent your own ones. So, you know, that that was like the single biggest application. And I think it still is. Like, mm. I think um, my information is probably out of date, but uh, well, at least two years ago, uh, three in four smart contracts were just this ERC-20 category. Yep. Yeah. There are a lot of ways and avenues and facets we can take this conversation. But yeah. I think before we go deep into the definitions and everything, yeah, yeah. I, I'm just curious as to your first interaction with blockchain technology or Bitcoin mm -hmm. or Ethereum. What what was that like for you? Because you, you mentioned that you have been programming for a very long time. So yeah. um, I'm sure you might have chanced upon it earlier. What do you remember your first interaction? Was it very... Uh, different to you or was it very like mind-blowing to you what what was that to you yeah so i i was one of those nerds who uh actually read the bitcoin white paper so it's mm. like an academic paper that described it before bitcoin actually launched mm. right so there was a there was a gap in between and i was like this is very interesting i should you know run this on my computer and at, at that time it was feasible now you need to it's like mining right is it, yeah, you, but, is it but now you need like a, you know, a, a whole farm of servers to do it and specialized equipment and you are basically you need VCs type money yep. to, to actually run a, to run that feasibly. Um, but back then you could just use your retail grade laptop to. <laughs> back then it's like 10, 10 years ago or something. Yeah. 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 
but then I was I, for whatever reason I just uh, didn't think too much of it at the time and you know forgot about it. Yep. And then and then maybe in 2013 or so, it uh, it became in it, it came up in the news again. I was like, oh yeah, I remember reading about this. <laughs> what is it worth now? Okay. And then like, <laughs> damn, missed yep. out on that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that that was, I would say, my uh, first like, you know, touch point yep. with with it. So really, really early on. Yep. Um, so I, I guess I did what a lot of people would have done at the time, which is buy a token sum mm. uh, in that uh, in in Bitcoin. Yep. And um, and then fast forward like many years later, uh, not many years later, just a few years later after that, uh, Ethereum came along and mm. it's like, oh, this is interesting. You know, um, just filled around with it a bit. And I was like, okay, this is this is relatively easy from the coding point of view. Um, the it's 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 a very limited platform because when you decentralize something, um, it at a fund at a technological level, what it means is that many different computers have to run the same thing. Yep. Right. Um, you store the same data. You have to execute the same code in a redundant way. So let's say the 10,000 computers running Ethereum software, mm. all 10,000 of them would have to say, store the same data and execute the same code. Yep. And they'd all have to come into agreement with each other um, in order for that um, program to to work in that way or, or for that transaction to compute. Yep. Um, yeah, so so I I I guess I again missed the boat, you know, at the time. <laughs> okay. I was like, yeah, you can't do that much with it. And I and I mm. guess like the I I was thinking of it from a software engineer's point of view, right? What was the like, point of view like, yeah. So so like how difficult is it to store data? Right? How expensive is it to store data? And you know, what is the latency? What is the throughput? Mm. Right. Um, and I, I can define those terms if you want. But I think like the the conclusion is that on all of those fronts, right, you're almost always better off like, you know, using centralized technology. Mm. So I sort of like th- this is not really mature enough. This is 2017, 2018. Um, was it earlier than maybe that? earlier than that this okay. was like maybe the uh, about a year into ethereum okay. launching right? okay um yeah i can't i can't again i can't remember this has been a while <laughs> um yeah so it is like from a software engineering point of view like this is this is basically really slow yep right yep. and I, i'm like why would anyone want to create code on this and i was like okay so this stuff will go through a maturity thing it'll learn how to scale and then when it becomes bigger and then i didn't realize at the time that that level of slowness and expensiveness to store data was actually sufficient right um to build to build programmable money which i came to earlier on and that's that's why it exploded Mm -hmm. right so even though it was i would say and still is the most expensive database in the world in terms of like how many kilobytes you can store per dollar right and the fact that it takes uh 15 seconds for you to get a response in the best case scenario Mm. right all of that was still limited as it was, was still good enough to create this concept of 
programmable money and it was just barely usable enough for people <laughs> to want to use it, yep. right? And the reason why they were using it as opposed to, you know, the alternative traditional... Um, centralized. Centralized right? finance, yeah. if you want to call it that, or yep. traditional finance mm-hmm. is, well, for, for two reasons. One is because people liked you know the 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 fact that it was decentralized and you know basically like this is it's cowboy. like a branding thing <laughs> it's like branding <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> but i think it's like the fact that that they enjoyed or reveled in the fact that sure. it was uncontrollable to yep. some extent yep but then i think and 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 this is this is like something that maybe we don't get in singapore right cuz the sgd is is worth the same every day Right. Next year is worth the yeah. same. It, you know, it Hopefully, loses, yeah. <laughs> it loses two, three percent or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. The inflation rate is stable. Right. Yeah. You can trust stable. it. Yeah. Um, if you store a large amount of Singapore dollars in your bank account, you're not losing your wealth. Mm. But that is not the case in yep. a lot of other countries. Yep. Right. Um, and so, you know, like if you, if you live in, Argentina or mm. Venezuela or something like that, right? You definitely do not want to store your money in the local currency, yeah. right? And it's so bad that the governments like actually have to legislate uh, various laws to force you and companies to do that, yep. right? Because because otherwise the, in- the inflation will get yeah. even worse. Yep. And and then you get like a huge difference in the black market price and the true price, yep. uh, the the official price of of the currency, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like you know, like you don't you don't like see the value of that, right? Um, because you're in such a stable, or we live in a yep. stable economy here, yep. right? And then maybe I wasn't. Uh, of enough of an anarchist persuasion to see the other aspect of it. So yeah. I completely missed the boat again. So based on what you just said, when it, let, let's, let's talk about Ethereum. So when the technology first came out, I think back in 2014, 2015, there, from a software engineer's point of view, it didn't make sense because of- It didn't scale. In, in comparison to, to centralized uh, yeah. databases or stuff like that. Yeah, and to, to some extent, it still, it still does not, right? Mm. Like it still has the same, you know, expensiveness of data and slowness of transactions. But, you it's know, awesome. it's good enough, right, for, for this particular use case, right? And, um, and you know, then, then there are newer generations of blockchain technology that, you know, are coming much, much closer to the centralized, um, centralized technology thing. Yep. You know, uh, Ethereum is trying to make that switch at the moment as well, right? Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, let's just say, um, greenfield development, meaning you start a project from scratch, right? Yep. So let's say you have a canvas and it's blank. You can paint whatever you it's want. It's a lot on easier, it, right? Yep. Yep. It's a lot easier to do that. Yep. Um, then let's say uh, you have an existing project with all these users and you can't piss them off. You can't make them lose their money. You can't destabilize yep. the network and, yep. you know, cause frustration, etc. So you, you've already got a painting. Uh, or maybe let's use a tattoo, right? You've already got a tattoo. Uh, you want to change it to something you else. Can't, <laughs> you, you can't erase it, yep. right? But yep. you have to change the picture, yep. right? Very it, difficult. It's... it's <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the artist has to be a lot more skilled. Yes. Right. Uh, and, and that is, you know, and, and that's what they're trying to do right now. They're, they're trying to like sort of change the wheels on a moving car. Right. <laughs> Before we go into the definitions of these things, um, could you please sure. tell or could you please articulate what's the difference between uh, a centralized database or centralized server or between okay, rather a centralized application versus a decentralized application? What are the pros and cons as to why uh, perhaps a, a software developer might want to go for the, the centralized ones? Hmm. Okay, so I guess you're looking for certain properties. Okay. Right? So, um, well, what I mentioned earlier on about uh, the the code not being able to be changed after the fact, mm. right? So, that is possible and people are sure of it because that code is on a decentralized ledger. And part of that means that it's distributed across all of the computers participating in this peer-to-peer network. Mm -hmm. So all 10,000 computers on Ethereum, running Ethereum, uh, the Ethereum software, will be all storing the same data, storing the same code, executing the same code according to the same rules. And now contrast that to a... Uh, like uh, a centralized server, let's say DBS, right? Yep. So one day they could arbitrarily say, uh, now your interest rate is different. And they mm. do that all the time, yep. right? Yep. Uh, it's in fact considered normal, right? Yep. Um, whereas in if you were to do that in a smart contract, there would have to be uh, an explicit function inside that smart contract that says this person is allowed to change this rule and whoever was participating with that smart contract would need to say well i approve this and therefore want to participate in this or i'm just not going to participate in this they they, Mm. you know it's it's upfront yep right and it's independently verifiable as well like so so all the logic is out in the open um so a developer would say, okay, so here's the code on the blockchain and it's just like a bunch of hexadecimal digits or ones <laughs> and zeros, right? Yep. But then what they'd also do is that they'll say, okay, so here's the code which is readable by a average developer, right? And then there's a mechanism where you can verify that this code matches these, well, uh, arbitrary looking mm. computer ones and zeros, yep. right? Binary uh, or hexadecimal or whatever, right? And that is something that you will never see in in a traditional system, right? Yeah, well, not never see, but typically do not see, right? They don't they don't open yep. their code to to the public, and even if they do, right? When you interact with the actual server, right? There's no guarantee that that what's running behind that server is different from uh, is is the same or different. Yep. Like you can't tell. Uh, from what they say is the from what your view of the code is. So even yep. if it's open source, yep. um, you know, like there's no way for you to verify it. So, like if you want that degree of how to say transparency, ab- yeah, transparency, yeah. Uh, ability to independently verify, right? Yep. So it's like you know, trust but verify kind of ethos, right? Yep. Then 
you know, then that's probably the main reason why you'd want to interact with a decentralized app on top of all the other, you know, properties that you get from a blockchain, which is, you know, that it's immutable, blah, blah, blah. Right. So, you know, yeah, being able to independently verify and know that the rug won't be pulled out from Mm -hmm. under your feet at some point in time in the future. Would you say, or at least it sounds to me like, decentralized applications or the functions that you can do with it is a lot more diplomatic as compared to a centralized one because as you mentioned they can choose to change certain functions of it without needing your consent does it is is that a correct way of describing it uh maybe not not diplomatic mm. um i i would say I, I just yeah transparent is 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 the word i'd use yep. so like when you decide to like shall i say this when when you decide to participate in something the rules are known to you up front mm. and you also have the guarantee that the rules will not be uh able to change be changed by another entity right um and then i guess uh there are some aspects where you do want that entity to be able to uh make changes Mm -hmm. and in those cases then they might uh, have a mechanism that's built in where they allow members however they define that inside of the code to to allow you to approve by a a vote also by another mechanism that they would have to encode up front right and 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 make known to you up front to be able to make those rule changes right and then you get into this whole other aspect of it that's called um uh, decentralized governance. Decentralized governance. Yeah. Which is a function of decentralized application. It's a category. So it's decentralized okay. finance, right? Yep. Which is sort of the example that I first went to because it's yep. the biggest and most easy to explain, maybe. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> everyone understands money. It's, it's, right? it's the most common yeah. use of decentralized applications. Yeah. So then you also have decentralized governance where you use the same smart contract technology. Mm. Uh, instead of encoding, you know, units of currency being transferred from one person to another or one account to another, you talk about each account getting to vote oh. and make decisions collectively. So, you know, for example, you could model uh, model an election on it, or uh, maybe in a company setting, you could model a shareholder vote on it. Mm. Um, and you don't even have to stick to um models that exist for these things like yep. um there is a uh there's a group of i don't know how to describe them but <laughs> basically like uh thinkers maybe or experimenters tinkerers uh they like uh, called radical exchange right radical exchange okay yeah so what is that? it's english is just the english words but exchange is spelt without the e so it starts with an x <laughs> okay right there's just the name <laughs> um and and there's they have a meetup in in singapore as well okay yeah so it's pretty cool uh and and one of the things that they like to talk about is how to vote um where one vote doesn't necessarily count for uh for one share of the total allocation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's so. For example, there's quadratic voting. So you uh, either square or square root 
um, the vote count or the vote weight mm. um, that you assign. Mm. So, and the idea is that you you use this sort of mathematical concept to ensure a more even distribution or or a more fair way of voting. Yep. So, you know, if let's say, uh, this is a, maybe a silly example, but let's say someone controls 60% of one, one entity, one person controls 60% of the share of votes. Okay. Right. And another 10 different entities control the remaining 40%. Mm. Right. Um, in a, in a one for one type yep. of voting system, the person with the entity, the entity with 60% would always win every election. Yep. Whereas with this, let's say you had to square root the vote share. Right. Then in that case, you'd have this concept of, um, the 60% uh, share of the vote would actually need to persuade the oh. 40%, right? So just because of the way the math has worked out, right? And then you combine that with the fact that uh, with another concept where um, you don't necessarily vote on a single issue, you vote on an allocation of uh, different choices. And you say, I want to put 50% of my vote share towards option A and then 25 mm. towards option B and yep. 25 towards option C or one person may go all in. Yep. Right. And then your shares can also potentially get square rooted or something like that. And, mm. you know, then you get like, you know, it's kind of reinventing uh, voting. Yep. Right. You're in reinventing um, governance or politics. It, yep. It's quite radical, right? The, 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 the new, ideas or, or ways or, or new new concepts that could emerge out of this right yep. it's like sort of um this isn't really a concept that has to do with uh blockchain you could you could totally do this on a traditional you know uh client server. yeah you could do it in a spreadsheet yeah you don't, you don't even need a client server you could do it in excel right um but you know the this concept of decentralized governance seems to resonate with the blockchain crowd. So at a technical level, there is no need to use blockchain to implement it, mm. right? In fact, um, it poses additional challenges, right? Mm. When you want to impl uh, implement it on a blockchain, for example, vote privacy, right? Mm. You, very hard to do that, possible, yep. very hard. Yep. Um, harder than with centralized technology. But, you know, because the crowd... It, uh, that's interested in one overlaps like with the with the crowd that is interested in the other one. That mutual you know, interest. It, yeah. <laughs> so that's where the you know the overlap is. Yep. So in in looking at the I guess the services the 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 web services and the applications we use today is it safe to say that most of it is centralized? Oh yeah. By and large. Okay. By and large. So correct me if I'm wrong, but would decentralized uh, applications and I guess web services, would it be the natural evolution or would it be for very, very specific use cases, perhaps let's say in the future? I, I think the, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure. Like I, that, that's mm. like kind of like a crystal ball moment. Um, if, if there is an inflection point, right, it could go either way. Right. But what, what I can speak to is maybe the current state of things. Yep. So 
the average person has probably interacted with a decentralized application, uh, not in a blockchain way, but like maybe a peer-to-peer application. Let's expand the yep. the boundary a bit, right? And that would be BitTorrent. Well, okay, since you mentioned it just now, and you mentioned peer-to-peer, yep. uh, is, are they exchangeable, the terms peer-to-peer and I guess blockchain technology, are they exchangeable? The no, terms? no, no. Okay, so, so it's two different things. So uh, is the networking... Uh, sort of architecture, yep. right? So peer-to-peer means like a- every person who is running the peer-to-peer software, whatever it is, BitT- BitTorrent, mm-hmm. right? Which is nothing to do with blockchain yep. or Bitcoin, right? Which is a blockchain software, right? Yep. Yep. They both use peer-to-peer technology. So the software that you run, it is not only requesting data, right? It is also serving data oh. to others. Mm. Right. Um, so in the case of BitTorrent, right, you are both seeding and leaching. You're familiar with the terminology. So when you seed, yes. you're, you're sending little tiny chunks of the files yep. to other, to other computers in the network. Yep. Right. And when you're leaching, you're, you're doing the reverse. You're downloading. Yep. Yep. Right. Um, but I avoid using the words upload and download, except when, you know, in that last sentence and instead like, use the term seed and leech because uploading and downloading kind of implies a client server relationship meaning you're always going to be the downloader and you're always going to be the uploader depending on whether you're the client or the server respectively fair enough right okay. whereas with with BitTorrent you're kind of doing both mm-hmm. right concurrently you, yes m- most of the time I mean and 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 that's actually uh, an interesting point you touch on concurrently, right? Because um, what happens in in BitTorrent, right, is you would say it's a technological uh, success, but it's an economic failure. It's a technical. Could you please explain that? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's like um, w- when a file is really popular, mm. it's easy to to leech. Right, so it's easy for you to obtain a file that you do not have by leeching of others, right? But there's no actual incentive for you to seed. Like, what does the average u- end user do, right? They they leech the file and then okay, I've got my file. Turn off the mm. BitTorrent client. There's no incentive for them to keep it on. Yep. Right. Um, contrast that with Bitcoin, where the incentive to keep the the network running is so high that it's not only profitable but it's so like it's it's big business yep. right and to the point that the average user is priced out of it but that's like a different story yep. altogether yep. but the economic incentive like uh-huh. it's it's technologically sound and it's also economically sound and that was one of its key innovations yep. right so whoever designed it was not just like a crazy programmer but <laughs> you know also had a very very strong economics fundamentals understanding right and and clearly uh, tr- manage to translate that into the tech. Even the psychological aspect of how people want to do things. I mean... Yeah, game theory is a big part of this. So, um, I, well, let's avoid the definition of this, but there's this thing called Byzantine fault tolerance. Uh, In layman's terms, please. <laughs> okay, so Byzantium, which is present-day Istanbul, was a city that was under siege uh, throughout many times in history. Okay. Basically, the, the Greeks and the Ottomans were constantly at war and this seemed to be like the prize jewel city, yep. right? Um, and, uh, and, and it's, this problem is named after it where the generals who are attacking it, b- besieging the city had to coordinate an attack. 
right? Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) If if there was a certain number of them, a certain threshold of them that attacked it, they would win, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, if you were to attack, you would have to expend some resources. Yep. Which is a euphemism for people get killed and yep. you know. Yep, yep. But let's let's put aside the gory the gory details of the origins of this. Um, so it would be under your selfish interest to cheat and hold back, right? Yep. So how do you co- coordinate your message passing and sort of second guessing the the whole psychology yep. of everyone else, yep. right? Um, to do the optimal thing, which is to all attack together or all hold back together, right? How do you actually do that, right? And how do you incentivize that from happening? And so like in the context of a peer-to-peer network, um, Bitcoin was the first thing to solve that problem, mm. right? Um, yeah. And it's important to, to actually make a note because going back to the peer-to-peer, uh, I guess, system of running with, let's say, BitTorrent or even Bitcoin, it is anonymous individuals, or rather people you don't know. And you are, with regards to BitTorrent, you are seeding and leeching from people you don't know. And there's a lack of, uh, you mentioned incentives, but mm-hmm. the technology has existed for quite a bit, even before BitTorrent, right? Because I, I remember LimeWire, and I guess even way back then. Oh, yeah, yeah. BitTorrent uh, was just like, I guess, the most uh, popular protocol. Yep. Yeah. There were quite a number of others. Um, and to be honest, I'm not so familiar with the rest of them. Mm. Um, a lot of them were file sharing in the sense that they were achieving the same goal as BitTorrent, but they were actually doing so uh, with some degree of centralization, meaning that it wasn't really a true peer-to-peer network. Whereas BitTorrent was genuinely a peer-to-peer network. What would be the difference if it's with file sharing in a centralized versus yeah, so yeah. so the the technology the technology in the network the network architecture so peer to peer network architecture was a means to an end of file sharing right M- mm. much in the same way that the peer to peer network was uh, in the case of blockchain was also a means to an end of decentralization right a decentralization of a storage of a ledger of transactions <laughs> it's yeah <laughs> quite a mouthful um yeah so file sharing services do not need to be uh peer to peer right they can be they can they can go through a file server right and and these 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 do exist right yep. um they're quite they're quite uh, prevalent in fact like any anyone can spin up their own server um and put a bunch of files on it and say hey here are the urls please go download them yep. is the reason why peer to peer file sharing is uh i would say more pre- prevalent is is probably because of legal reasons you know if you're sharing copyrighted materials that you do not have the right to share, share with others yeah. then it's harder uh, it's harder to be taken down if you're on a peer to peer network cuz it's kind of like a sort of like what's the the whack-a-mole game where you know like you use a, the use a hammer you hit the thing and then it pops up in the other yep. hole and yep. yeah so yeah but with a client server architecture it's like go after yep. that one server and or that one company that's responsible for the network and then boom the whole thing is down that's yep. that's essentially uh the main difference napster for you mm. right i'm i'm curious to know your own opinion on 
I guess the legality with regards to peer to peer. What 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 do you think about it? Because I think there's as as you mentioned, there's a lot of talk about uh, it is you are it is legal to a certain degree because you're sharing uh, copyright materials that you do not have the copyright to share. Yeah. What are your thoughts on it? It's well, you have to sort of separate the technology from the use case. Okay. Right. So file sharing is not illegal, mm. right? Um, but file sharing of stuff that you do not have the right to share is illegal, right? Uh, much in the same way that, um, you know, owning and, and selling someone something with Singapore dollars is not illegal, mm-hmm. right? However, if you sell something that you do not own, then that's illegal, mm. right? So, like, uh, if if you if you say that peer to peer networking is associated with uh, with file sharing, therefore that technology is illegal, that's tantamount to saying, by virtue of this analogy, that Singapore dollars or trading using Singapore dollars is illegal because it's used to sell things that people do mm. not own, right? So you can't you have to separate the concepts, uh, technology being. You know, this versus cash, right? Mm. And, you know, files versus items. <laughs> that is so confusing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I said, it's like the, you know, the tool versus the the intent, maybe. Mm. So if you use the tool with the right intent, then the, the tool is fine. But if you use the tool with the wrong intent, then that's bad. Oh, this is so confusing. <laughs> Okay, okay. You mentioned about uh, incentivization, and I think uh-huh. the example you brought up was Bitcoin. Is it do do different blockchain architectures do they incentivize the the individuals to run in a different way, or or is yes. the in- incentivization is it a key part of uh for for people to 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 continue running the software? Both, both, yes. So, um, different blockchains do incentivize differently, mm. and different. Uh, well, sorry, what was the second question? <laughs> do do all blockchains incentivize in some form or fashion the the people to run the software? Yes, they they would have to. So, um, I I think like maybe the most well known example uh, is is Bitcoin and. Um, their incentive structure um, is every time you uh, you mine a block. So if you're one of those, well, nowadays, supercomputers that yep. is actually mining and you solve this, uh, I wouldn't say hard puzzle. I would just say mundane puzzle, right? <laughs> but I won't get into the details. You're basically computing the same thing over and over yep. again with some small variation, yep. right? Um, and you're the first one to solve it that crosses a particular level of threshold, okay. which proves that you have expended uh, on, you know, if you amortize it, this much computing power over this amount of time, right? Yep. Then you get a block reward. A block reward. Okay. Yeah, so it's like a fixed amount. Okay. Right? Um, and then on top of that, each of the transactions that are inside the block, you get a transaction fee, right? So if I transfer you, let's say I'm super rich, I transfer you one Bitcoin, mm. right? I can't transfer you one Bitcoin, 
right? Um, I would have to transfer you 1.0001 oh, okay. Bitcoin. And that additional fraction is the transaction fee and the miner gets to keep that as well. Yep. So that's like the direct reward for mining, right? Like your operational cost versus your operational revenue, Yep. right? And then you think of it long-term, right? There, there's also like a more economics-based uh, aspect to it. And, and the first one might uh, be obvious, right? The, like with any asset class, there is a speculatory aspect to it. Yep. So like it's going to rot, the price is going to rise over time. So therefore I want more of this asset class. So, mm. you know, there's that aspect of it. And then there's also like maybe uh, less well-known or I would say very well-known inside the, the cryptocurrency community, but maybe for those of uh, us who are outside of it are not aware of this, is that this currency is designed by its nature to be deflationary, which mm. is the opposite of any government issued currency. Yep. Right, uh, also known as fiat currencies, mm. right? So, um, Singapore dollar, US dollar, euros, whatever, um, the government can arbitrarily decide to print yep. more, right? And in fact, it's a given that they will print more, right? Uh, in fact, they aim for a certain amount of inflation every year as part of their economic planning. It's the standard thing to do, right? So, what that means is that year on year, your currency will devalue by that amount. Right. Uh, that's sort of the, that's how the math works out. Now, um, with Bitcoin, what it does is it says it's defined. Remember, I mentioned the block reward. Yep. So that halves every certain number of years. So you start off like, um, let's say your block reward is 12.5. Now, a yep. few years from now, it's going to be six, 6.25. Right. And it will go down to three, to three point one two five, etc. So it will halve and halve and halve. Yep. And so, uh, and the gap between each halving stays the same, right? So it basically, if you were to graph it, I'm. <laughs> what are you? What is this? Curve? This is this is audio. I realize, but I'm I'm sort of making an asymptotic curve with okay. my hand. So it approaches this theoretical maximum without ever actually touching it, but. In practice, um, they've done the math and it's practically going to uh, flatten out by the time it hits. can't remember. I think uh, it's the year 2100. Right? Wonderful. <laughs> so at that point of time, yep. right, the block reward will be effectively zero and the, and the total supply mm. right, of all of the Bitcoin that there is in the world and can ever be, mm. right, will remain that amount fixed fixed right and because of this right and the total supply is locked and is encoded in the mm. code so unless someone comes along and says i want to change this rule and the majority of bitcoin miners agree that they want to change this rule um you know you can take it as a given that this the total supply will never exceed this amount and so therefore Economists will say this is a deflationary currency. Mm. Well, it's definitely deflationary relative to any fiat currency or government issued currency. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so, so that's, that's the sort of, uh, incentive. another incentive. Yeah. So I sort of went over two, like, sort of operational incentive mechanisms yep. and two economics, uh, based incentive mechanisms it's it's interesting so it all comes together it's, it's it's very interesting because 
what you just described about, I think, government-issued money, which is fiat currency, right? In the beginning, you talked about how uh, because of Ethereum and I guess the the this decentralized nature of it, people were using it to create their own currency. It sounds exactly like that because they can they have a certain fixed uh, monetary policy. They have to print more. They have to, I guess, quote unquote, create more, which goes back into what people were using, I guess, the Ethereum platform to to create their own currency. They can yeah. create at will. <laughs> That, that, that's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing because people invent their own currency and of course, n- not all of them will do it with the same set of economic rules, right? Economic rules. Interesting. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is this whole, uh, there is this whole, um, topic called token economics, which has been token sort of economics. Okay. Contracted into tokenomics. <laughs> Right. It sounds like a rap song. Okay. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't be surprised if there were <laughs> okay. someone someone's gotta create a song for tokenomics. But um, is token used in a similar fashion to currency in the the, mm. the the development space? Like is there a difference? Yeah, yeah. Uh that's actually a common misconception because the 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 difference is technical. The end user sees them as the same thing. So the layman sees it as the same thing, but on the technical side, if you are a software developer, you have to know the difference. Yes, definitely. And even as an end user, to some extent, you do need to know the difference. It's just that from what I've seen so far, like it's a point of major confusion and, you know, a lot of people don't get it. Mm. Um, I I actually do have an explainer video uh, that goes into this is three and a half minutes long. Yep. It's on the RSK website. I, I work for a, a blockchain company called mm. RSK. Um, so we've got an expl- explainer video ex- uh, that kind of explains what exactly are the you know similarities and differences between a cryptocurrency and a ERC20 token, which is what most people refer to when they say token, right? What is ERC? <laughs> Uh, we're we're going to spend this entire conversation <laughs> with definitions. Um, so it's, it's, it's just like a ID number, a serial number assigned Fair to enough. different uh, proposals. Yep. And one category of proposals has to do with tokens, right? Um, and so the most popular one is ERC-20. And this is the token standard for smart contracts that um, is most similar to to mimicking cash. Okay. Right? Okay. So, um, for example, you have a, a completely different category of tokens called non-fungible tokens. So ERC-20s are considered fungible because mm. they're divisible, they're interchangeable. So one unit of... Uh, a $50 bill, right? I can divide it into 10, uh, sorry, five $10 bills, right? Or 10 $5 bills, whatever, <laughs> right? Um, and if I gave you my $50 bill and you gave me your $50 bill, it's who cares? Yep. It's, you know, like one, like there's no difference in value, right? So that's a an example of a fungible token, right? Um, now a non-fungible token is, let's say you take that poster over there, right? Mm-hmm. And you say, I put the rights to ownership of that poster, mm. right? Inside of a token. So that 
poster is not interchangeable with another. This is a one of a kind, yep. Yep. right? Fair and if I were to take a scissor to it and cut it up into a few pieces, then it loses value. It's not the same as before, right? It's not divisible. It's not interchangeable. So there are different token standards in play. And, you know, this, this is just one of them. <laughs> Is there ERC one to nineteen, or did you just yeah? Fix but they're not necessarily uh, they're not necessarily all adopted, meaning they're not uh, in use, um, okay. and they also don't all have to do with tokens. Right? Okay. There are a lot of, in fact, most of the ERCs. It stands for Ethereum Request for Comment, and confusingly, it's interchangeable with EIP, which is Ethereum Inf Improvement Proposal, right? And they all have to do with like people starting a discussion or a debate and then ending up with, hopefully, if they get through the entire process, a change to the underlying protocol or defining a standard or whatever it is that is widely accepted by the community. Does this, does what you just said, does it go back to the governance thing you were talking about initially? Uh, Deciding like the, what to, to improve, because it's an <sighs> improvement standard, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, you can use decentralized governance for this, um, however, so far it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to be the case. Like I see most of the governance happening via the equivalent of forum comments, <laughs> right? Is yeah. that normal or is that? That seems, that seems to be, that seems to be the way it is, uh, at okay. the moment. Um, however, I do, I do see like, uh, I do see some form of decentralized governance happening at the improvement proposal things. Uh, I, I do see that happening as well in the space. Yep. Um, however, I will say that if there is a change, uh, mandated by an EIP, uh, an improvement proposal and, uh, that still needs to be in some sense voted on by, the miners on that network, right? So if they don't accept the improvement proposal, they can just ignore it mm. and continue according to the existing or prior rules. And then that's also a form of decentralized governance. It's just that it didn't involve smart contracts, right? It's just like at the protocol level. Because I think it goes back to the incentivization about, I think if you're a miner on this particular thing, if whatever you're doing is profit-driven, it has to make monetary sense. Yes, yes. Um, well, I mean, I would say that the the community around this doesn't only care about money, or I mm. would like to think so. Um, it cares about money and the future of decentralization, the future of the platform. And, you know, like if... There is, if there is a lot of community spirit behind it and it is extremely popular, then it is a disincentive for the miners to go against, go only in their own selfish interest, right? Cause then what happens if they use the utility, right? And people go to a different competing platform, mm. right? So there, there's like a whole bunch of game theory going on in, in this as well. So, you know, the miners have to decide. And at the end of the day, if, the majority of it go with it because uh, because it's against their monetary self-interest, but it's in the platform's self-interest and they're thinking more long-term, then so be it, right? But they could also say, I want to maximize short-term gains and then not go with yep. the what the community has agreed upon off-chain, so to speak. So as a software developer and as a programmer, 
are all these concepts uh do they interest or do they ex- excite you with regards to the process because all these concepts are sort of abstract when you think about it about it being a little bit radical it being like so removed from how it is currently that it is at least from what what i can tell it's not just about the code it's not just about writing the actual thing like mm-hmm. yes you have to have a certain sense of i guess the word is anarchy or to to rebel or to whatever like do, do these abstract concepts do they influence or i guess the word is excite like does it interest you in that way yeah yeah i mean i've never thought about it in those terms but how okay then how how have you seen it yeah so like to some extent like novelty is exciting right where as humans like naturally wired to seek out uh something that is different from the norm yep right like there's always like some part of your brain I don't know whether this is just me or, you know, not all people. It's always some part of your brain that wants familiarity and comfort. But then once you've got enough of that, then the other part of your brain <laughs> just sort of switches on and says, I want something new. You know, <laughs> yes. it's like, it's like, it's like, you know, suddenly your eyes pop open and like, yeah. what else is out there? Yep. Um, and I guess the fact that you're not really like sort of laying bricks or digging a hole or something, you're not doing menial labor, right? Already connotes that you've got the, 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 the standard stuff sorted out, yep. right? Your day to day is, is normal and predictable for the most part, yep. right? And so you spend a larger proportion of your brain time, if you will, um, thinking about novel things than usual, right? And so when you're in this space that is sort of seemingly exploding or teeming with possibilities and you kind of have a toolbox that has less red tape around it, uh, right? Okay. That's a very exciting thing, right? So like if you wanted to be an economist, with the power to influence inflation rates or create your own currency uh, or design your own auction system or invent a new form of politics based on a novel voting system, right? You would need to probably spend 10 years in a grassroots organization uh, bootlicking to some politician Uh, or you would need to have a PhD in economics mm. and then be the best in your field, yep. whatever, right? Yep. You know, it'd be a long, grueling effort and a very, very tiny fraction of anyone who wants to go down each of these paths would actually get to be in that position, Yep. right? Like how many of them are there, you know, in Singapore? Yep, a handful. You know, <laughs> exactly, right? Yep. So, it, let's say that's five people, right? Yep. And we've got five to seven million people right so what, what percentile is that <laughs> less than one in a million yeah. right whereas what if i told you that you could probably read a few books on economics a few books on coding and you could do any one of those things in theory right the the amount of red tape that exists that uh takes you from getting to from from you know a lay person if you will right? Like, a, you know, idealistic, yep. I have an idea stage to being able to execute it with real people, real 
resources, right, is just just that much shorter, right? You mm. could feasibly do it in months if you're really smart, uh, you know, maybe a few years, but you wouldn't have to be a one in a million. You wouldn't have to spend your entire career to yep. get there, yep. right? It, it, it's actually attainable for the average person. And that's, that's exciting, right? And the part of your brain that is like excited by novel things says, hey, this is not just novel. This is novel and feasible. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's still hard. Mm. And most people who do this, they invent their own currency or their voting system or whatever, right? It will most likely fail, yeah. right? But at least they got to try it in the real world, yeah. right? And the chances of success, as dismal, dismal as it is, right? Um, still higher than, you know, the traditional route. Yep. I think in... in in the analogy that you just mentioned, in comparison to what was it like before and what is it like now, if you have, to your point, the right tools and the right information, and you are, I guess, committed to making it work or to to to, do, to actually create something, it is actually possible. From from what you just mentioned, like to, yeah. to take an idea from the, I guess, the prototype stage and to push it out to a product, whether if it's successful, or fit, I think that's a different conversation. But it is actually possible to push out something yeah yeah i mean uh the term uh mentioned earlier on uh that should be the song of a rap uh song perhaps. tokenomics tokenomics um i i think there are two the books uh <laughs> the authoritative <laughs> references on that topic okay. right and one of them is written by someone in singapore and uh, from singapore at least and she consults all over the world and she's really young you know, like she, it, it's like someone to get to that level, right? Um, in, in such a short period of time would not have been possible without the space and the speed with which, you know, the accelerated path that you can, that you can go on. Yep. Right. Um, it's, it's just, it's just crazy, right? Like, uh, the level of accomplishment you can get to. Uh, and just by virtue of removing that level of red tape that just happens to be the way it is. Yep. Even uh, with I should say the, it was. Even, even with regards to the information that's out there that is quote-unquote readily available if you know what to look at, you know what to search for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's not about being held back by red tape so much. It's now only you being held back by your knowledge, ability to execute. Mm. So with at least at least from my point of view, the whole crypto, I guess cryptocurrency and the whole space is to your point, there isn't a lot of rate tip or legalities to it to a certain degree. But does that mean that there is a lot of misinformation and I guess uh what what's the word for it? Untrustworthy actors in the space because it is so wow. <laughs> yeah. So just because there's no red tape doesn't mean that there isn't legalities involved in this. Mm. Uh, in fact, I would say the opposite, right? There's a lot of uh, FUD, to what use Reddit fun? lingo, fear, uncertainty, and doubt <laughs> in this space. And, and, and that extends to the official uh, level, the regulatory bodies, uh, whoever's in charge, right? The ones who have the control of the red tape right now. So, for example, um, 
I, I think I have an example that would sort of apply to both of your questions, right? Yep. So um, initial coin offerings, ICOs, they sort of just exploded in 2018, yep. right? So everyone heard about uh, tokens, right? Mm. In, in the news for the first time, if they, if they have, that 2018 probably was it, mm. right? And that essentially was, for the, for the most part, unregulated security offerings, Right, so you're selling some tokens Your for own a certain, currency, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, debate is at a technical level, it can be a currency, but a lot of these projects they were selling it as an investment uh, to own a yeah, and 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 that's how it sort of falls into this legal gray area where regulators have to come in and say, I classify this as a utility token, meaning it's actually a token that you use for a particular, you know, usage, yep. utility, yep. or it's a security, meaning you're trying to sell something that is akin to shares yep. or, or yeah, as something for investors to buy and speculate yep. on. Um, don't don't quote me on this. I'm not a finance person, <laughs> but the problem the problem at that point of time was that too many people were able to do this, and it was unregulatable. So mm-hmm. what happened was the the governments uh, realized that they could control some aspect of it, which was when fiat currency was being sold to purchase. Uh, these tokens, right? And so then that's where they applied yep. their regulatory pressure. So, and, and you know, I guess they were right to do so because answer the second part of your questions, a lot of them were fly-by-night operations. You know, they'd mm. collect the money in their ICO and then sort of promise that they would build XYZ and then they would just disappear. Oh, shit. Right? So it's like it's like a wild west cowboy mm. kind of thing, and yep. you have to do your own research, mm. right? So if you were to buy a security offering in the traditional finance space in Singapore, um, you will have the assurance that it's been regulated by all the authorities, including MAS. Yep. Right? You you wouldn't be able to buy shares in Singapore of any company unless it's regulated in some way by the government, right? But then once you get into this crypto space and suddenly, oh, um, you know, like the government can't tell you to do what anymore, uh, mm. to, to what to do anymore. And that's that's inherently risky, right? And, and that's why I say, you know, you can sort of work around it. Like you can, you can find some ways to get your fiat currency into the crypto space, but if you do so, right, it's at your own risk, mm. right? And and it, it pains me to say this because, like, I actually work in the the blockchain space in a legitimate company, yep. right? But there, there's just because of a lack of regulations, there there are so many possibilities, and and a lot of people there, are, you know, not in it for the right reasons, right? Mm. They use decentralization not because they believe in the ethos of it, but because they say, oh, this is an easier way to. To do shady things. <laughs> to do shady things, yeah, because there's less accountability. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, 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 yeah, and maybe the the other thing, the I mean, apart from the legalities and all of that, the other thing to be buyer beware is even if the ICOs have the the best intent, not a lot of them, 
right? Coming back to the tokenomics conversation and the fact that anyone can design it, not a lot of them get it right from an economics point of view, right? Mm. So what happens in an ICO is uh, you have this to- total supply of tokens, however you've designed the total amount to be, and a certain share is allocated to the founders, whatever, um, and then the rest of it is put up for sale. Yep. People exchange an existing cre- uh, cryptocurrency for this new token yep. that they think will appreciate. Yep. And then... Uh, the clock strikes midnight or whatever metaphor you want to use <laughs> and boom, the amounts are available in all of these people's accounts that have purchased them. And 99% of the time, what happens to the price graph is it just goes down. Oh, it's a right? sharp turn. <laughs> yeah. And, it's a sharp drop. And you like, and, and then you get all these rage comments like, oh, I thought you would. And, and you know, like these, and this happens even for legit projects, right? Mm. So for the non-legit projects, this happens because the founders, they just dump their shares immediately, yep. which exacerbates the problem. Yep. But even when it is a legit pro- project, the, the, the people who purchase in the ICO, right? They, there's a, basically the demand is going to be the same before and after. Yep. Most of the time, yep. but then there's a sudden increase in supply. Yep. So economic theory says you've got to find the new intersection of demand yep. supply. That's your new price, and that that's why it drops mm. immediately. And not enough projects actually, you know, take this into account. I mean, now that the space is more mature, you see things like a delayed release where you know the the tokens are released in tranches of you know X percent per month or whatever it is, and on different timescales for different categories of of uh, like founders vc investors yep. various tiers of ico purchases etc like that's a more mature model and i'm glad that the space is going towards that but you know like in the cowboy days like you would just you know like just see 99 percent of the time it'd just be a vertical drop off a cliff oh, as, soon, as soon Jeez. as it, it, it was available on an exchange you know yep. it, it'd just be silly you mentioned about the ethos of, I guess, decentralization. Could you speak to that? And how, what does it mean to, for a company to want to create something decentralized? Because a company, like, it's sort of like a centralization of, I guess, uh, developers and stuff like that. But what does it mean for a centralized company to create something decentralized? Is there like a paradox there? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I think... Um, the companies that, that do this right and truly have this at heart, they, they do have stated in their roadmap a certain number of years before they project that the company itself will, uh, dissolve, either dissolve or, uh, relinquish control over mm-hmm. the blockchain project that they are, that they are bootstrapping, right? Bootstrapping. So uh, bootstrap is, you know, the entrepreneurial word. <laughs> for for initialization right so they define a certain number of years where they're going to take in their vc funding yep. traditionally or their their uh token uh sale or mm. ico whatever form of token sale they choose and and the funds that they raise there they'll have a burn rate for x number of years by which they are going to project that the project will become self-sufficient and run by itself through members of the community who believe in the project, right? And I, I think that's 
that's what uh that's admirable right that that's a company that has the ethos of decentralization at heart because the they see the necessity to build a company right um because they need to concentrate uh, and focus yep. and that implies centralization yep. but if they have a, a, a like a roadmap saying okay i'm achieving this level of decentralization over time yep. then at some point it crossed the threshold or an inflection point and said okay then the community can run it mm. yeah and there are ways to uh, achieve this right like um the decentralized governance um thing that i mentioned earlier on that's one good example of it um there are, there are others um for example um if if you see how uh bitcoin miners have approached it um they're saying okay we have this concentration of resources in what you call mining pools mm-hmm. and you know like if if one becomes too big then it's considered too centralized so let's break them up um and you know they don't have to but uh in the past they have like said okay this is better for the community and it's a risk to not do it uh sending the wrong message so then the, the big pools split split themselves up so you know you see you see it in various forms um and 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 those are the kinds of projects that i would say have the ethos at heart um when when you think about it from a point of view of like how does a company a traditional company fit into the space yep. but even when conceptualizing let's say a roadmap and uh a, a a kind of specialized project that uh, the centralized company is is working towards it is quite perilous to think that the the road will always be smooth and even so like the technology will change and you might have competitors in the same space so it sounds as though that nothing is for certain for sure because the, the space is so it feels very saturated to me i don't know how you feel about it like there is a lot of uh let's say there is one particular uh sector but there's like 25 different companies trying to aim for this sector maybe only like two will succeed so even though you might have a very legitimate role man you might have a very good vision and team and whatever the case may be it is still not a guaranteed success it sounds like that to me yeah i mean that would you could say the same thing for like startups mm. that have nothing to do with blockchain as well yep. right so it is like competition uh, there's a competition yeah exactly they're all competing for a slice of the pie yep um but what i'd like to point out is like it depends on what your point of view is as to what the pie the pie is right so what if you you're competing that, yeah. for a slice of the blockchain piece then you're kind of in this mentality where you have competitors yep right okay so you know this blockchain x is competing against blockchain y competing against blockchain z you know but if you think of it from a like a another point of view where the blockchain uh space is not the pie right mm-hmm. uh and blockchain is just a technology to the like a different means to an end yep. right so whether that that end you're looking for is traditional finance right so what slice of the pie of traditional finance is blockchain going to occupy using its decentralized finance mm. or open finance um if the if the pie that you're eyeing is decentralized application so i'm going to take on uh 
you know, the client server architecture style web applications or mobile applications. Yep. Then what is the slice of the pie that decentralized applications are going to take as part of that? Then when you think about it from that perspective, then it becomes a completely different picture, right? So blockchain X is no longer competing with blockchain Y and blockchain Z. They're all like suddenly friends, mm. if you know what I mean, yeah. right? Yeah. They're all like trying to find different solutions uh, to similar problems. But, you know, if less than 1% of your competition is another blockchain and 99% plus of your competition is not blockchain, yep. right? I mean, you could make the case for competing with another blockchain, but, you know, just probabilistically, your bigger slice of the pie is to be got, gotten <laughs> by competing with, you know, the rest Something of outside them, of it, right? right? Compete with yep. the 99%, don't compete with the 1%. Mm. Yeah. That is very interesting. Yeah. So, and, and to sort of like expand on that point, right? The key challenges to the blockchain space in terms of finance right now is the fact that there, that is just, is just size. How much value is locked in, in the blockchain space in, in the entire finance sector? Like, yeah, it's making lots of waves in the news, but it's still tiny. Like it's less than 1%. Right. Um, you know, as big as Bitcoin is, as big as the rest of uh, DeFi is, it's still less than 1%. Right. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not too much into that. So maybe my figures are out of date, but it's still tiny. Right. The, the big slice of the pie is competing with non uh, cryptocurrencies, non de yep. decentralized finance. Um, in terms of web applications, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a different space. So, um, Let's talk about like the different generations of the web, right? Different generations. You 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 have to to explain on that. Yeah. To so me. <laughs> web web one, right, is like your first internet uh, experience where maybe you went to, I don't know, GeoCities and created your website. Was that no? You know something in your time? I might have heard of it. I've seen YouTube videos uh, yeah, analyzing yeah. that, but that's okay. All. Yeah. So I was I was one of those you know kids who created okay. a GeoCities website. Like, oh, type some HTML code, and yeah. I've got a website now, yeah. and it's got all these really garish blinking text <laughs> with marquee scrolling around and yep. stupid gifs running around the border. Yep. yep. So know. that's Web One. Yeah. So I mean, that's just you know for the lulls. But yeah, the, the main thing is that those websites didn't really do much uh, that you couldn't do on printed paper, right? So you can think of it as a substitute for a newspaper oh, or a magazine. Enough. Okay. Right? Um, maybe it had some animations and that's about it. Yep. Right? So that's something that you wouldn't get in a newspaper. Yep. Um, then, then you had uh, Web 2, right? This is where you have your username and your password and you could mm -hmm. log in and you could do stuff. Stuff started becoming dynamic. Um, and your websites, you know, would it be personalized to you, right? Mm. And this sort of, this aspect of, and that, that became known as Web2, mm. right? It was sort of uh, led to this ability of centralization by certain companies because yep. you know like if you concentrate your server resources in in like google or yep. yahoo or 
whatever it was at at the time you know like you would you would just be able to out compete everyone else right like the average user couldn't run their own google right they could run their own geocities like website that was completely feasible right but once you wanted to run your own search engine or your own social media platform or whatever you would need something as powerful as Facebook or, or Google was, was too, capable of doing. Is it too taxing, like the computing power or something that's yeah? Needed? Like you would you would need like a lot of computing power okay. for sure. Um, you would need to have like dedicated software engineering talent. Um, it, 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 <laughs> yeah. it would exceed the the hobbyist tier, yep. right? Yep. So like a like the web one websites, you could do it as a hobbyist, yep. right? A web two thing, like as a hobbyist, you could still participate in it. There, there are lots of excellent examples. Um, of that, like for example, Blogspot, right? Oh. So that that was an example of Web two where you didn't have to run your own web server or anything, but everyone had a blogger, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, at the time, you know, and and you use your username and login to 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 uh, username and password to log in. You would edit your blog post and you'd post it up, and that was like sort of like uh in between of having your own website that you'd create and run yep. from scratch yourself. Uh, to, you know, um, to what you have now where Instagram is probably like the antithesis of that, where, you know, you're so siloed in what you can do. Like you can put a picture and you can put a caption, you can hashtag, you can, uh, put, uh, the at handles of the, of the other people involved. And that's about it. You can't even put a hyperlink to, to something else. And that's like, is such an abomination to me as a software engineer. Right. Like, how can you have a website that doesn't allow links? This is insane. Right. Like to me, it's it's revolting. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's like the pinnacle web tooization of, you know, and, and, and that's all made possible. And people actually want to use it because, you know, it's so easy to use and, you know, like it, it works. It's so snappy. The user experience is great, blah, blah, blah. Yep. But, you know, like if you think about it in the bigger scheme, it's like, I don't like this. I don't like this direction that the web has gone. Okay. <laughs> so that's web two. Now, web three, you were saying, okay, let's turn this thing on its head, right? Let's, let's have, uh, the backend, right? So the servers, um, that are usually controlled by a single entity now be run in a decentralized way, in a way that is upfront and transparent about what it does. You can't change the rules on you arbitrarily, et cetera, et cetera. Um, things I mentioned before and, um, and you know, like you, you would go when you log in to a website, you'd be interacting through it, uh, with your crypto wallet. Mm. Right. And that's like a, maybe a user experience problem. Right. Um, and then your interactions with it would be slow. Right. You know, it'd take you 15 seconds to get a response if you're using Ethereum. Um, at least. And, uh, and you'd also have to pay some yep. money to interact, you know, like it, what's called a gas fee. Um, each time you interact with it, uh, in a way that changes the state on the blockchain. And that's just like fundamental way in how this, you know, this network is, um, designed to be monetized. So, you know, the, the network doesn't need to be run through advertising revenue or selling Mm. your information or whatever, right? The economic incentive is for them to do it in such a way that you can do it 
in a permissionless way. Um, they don't have to sell you ads um, to to make money. Like you know, the 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 fees that you're paying them are are their income. So yep. you are you're not the you're not the product that's being sold. Yep. Right. Um, by the operator of the centralized server to another business, you're not the product anymore. You are actually their customer. Mm. Yeah. So if you're not paying for something then someone else is paying for you to use that same utility, right? So then you are no longer the customer, right? So, yeah, so there's like a, there's that benefit of that, you actually being the customer and you getting like sort of like your sovereignty back in how you interact with the web. Um, And something like a website where there's no ability to add links would probably never like exist under that economic circumstance Mm. or design. Um, however, right, they still have the slowness to solve the scalability problems of how fast it is to interact with that. Yep. Um, and the usability problem, you know, like people are used to usernames and passwords. They're not yep. used to installing a browser wallet, uh, crypto wallet and understanding what gas is and what yep. your yep. address and public key and private yep. key and all that stuff. It's, it's, this is new terminology that yeah. I guess the layman might not necessarily care for because they're so used to, let's say, using like a Google or using like an Instagram that if there's a, even even though that there might be an alternative that is uh, beneficial for them in the long run, it might take a while or it might, they might not even shift towards it because I guess with regards to, let's say, talking about Instagram per se, um, even though, even though, um, I guess from 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 someone in the crypto space point of view, it is there's a lot of negatives to it. But I guess from a layman's point of view, the the most important factor is like the network effect is still there. I mean, your friends are still there. You can still yeah. look the at the average people. user loves Facebook, loves yep. Instagram. Yep. You know, like to me, from a tech point of view, Facebook is still okay. Like it's still <laughs> it's still a website. It doesn't, you know, like it, it has other things about it that maybe one would consider evil, like yep. selling you ads, yep. uh, selling your data, selling your data, <laughs> uh, you know, misinformation, all that stuff. That's still bad. But from a technical point of view, it's still a website, right? Um, and the way it allows you to interact with it, yes, it does give you a lot of restrictions, mm. right? But you know, you still, it still doesn't violate completely one of the principle or some of the principles of the internet. Whereas Instagram is like, it doesn't care. This is like, I'm just going to give users what they want and, you know, screw the ethos. Yep. What, how, how do you think the space would develop like web 3.0 do you think that there will be more adoption about with regards to decentralized web applications and uh services because i think um it's 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 very interesting right now like if you were to look at how people thought about the internet in the early 2000s or even mm-hmm. before that you get a lot of the same or already you you will get reactions that you wouldn't hear right now like it's, it's a new thing like why would i go to the web and use email for example right now it's very normal do you think it's only a matter of time before uh, something like, let's say, like a web-based wallet and all these like uh, specialized phrases become the norm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So again, you're asking me to have a crystal ball, which I don't. Um, 
so there, like I said before, there could be a, a phase of like maybe linear accumulation of users. So you go from 1% to 2%, 3% mm. steadily. And then that might continue forever or it might plateau. Possible, mm. right? Um, another possibility is that it might hit some inflection point and then after which it goes exponential. And then you'll get something like what you get with like switching from snail mail to, to email or from you know uh using a landline telephone to a smartphone with apps yep you know like all of these things they went through like maybe like a period of like the slow adoption curve yeah yeah and then inflection point go up yep i would like to see that inflection point go up obviously um but i can't predict the future you know um and i would say that these problems that i mentioned need do need to be solved Right, mm, the scalability so, of it. usability, scalability, right? So, and, and I do see a lot of promise, right? So, for example, uh, apart from the exa- the 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 issue with using wallets um, that I mentioned earlier on, um, assuming the user has gotten over that hurdle, or <laughs> assuming that there is an alternative type of wallet that a user uh, finds comfortable that abstracts that whole concept of managing your own keys away yep. I, I i have seen some uh some uh, well uh, quite a few solutions in that space but nothing that has sort of taken off quite yet um but let's say they get past that hurdle now the next one will be maybe uh you have a you you say you want to interact but you don't want to have to pay for the transactions mm. right um or you want to pay for a, a, a lower fee for the transactions because it's getting quite expensive now, yep. right? Because uh, of the scalability problems. So either the scalability problems get solved or you find some way to sort of uh, find some technical smarts to make <laughs> it cheaper, right? Yep. And I mean, I won't enumerate the different ways that are being that, that are being tackled, but there are quite a few in the space. For example, you could have a, a, a blockchain and then that blockchain has another blockchain called a layer two blockchain. Oh, like a layer on top. Okay, okay. Yeah, so, and, and that one has less of a bottleneck because it's designed to be used in a layer two yep. manner. Yep. And then, so the main blockchain offloads the oh. computational load into the second one yep. and then it syncs back up every now and then. Yep. That That is a, you know, that that's, for example, one solution, right? Uh, to this to this problem, right? Um, and another another way to do it is to to sort of like say instead of sending the transaction yourself directly in your wallet you say okay um i will sign a permission slip for someone else to sign that transaction but i do it in such a way that you know cryptographically signed and it says that yes okay so this person can only do this activity on there and then they then then that other you know entity sort of aggregates all of these things together and then does it in one transaction so various ways to like sort of improve usability and you know sort of solve the scalability problem at the same time yep and the more of these that there are then the more um the more solutions uh, the more users i would say would start to adopt these solutions yep um I, uh, another example no, or another example yeah okay <laughs> uh okay well um remember how i said uh, in bitcoin they have to have solve this mundane task over and over again to yep. prove that they have done this 
amount of computational yep. effort. So that's called proof of work, right? The proof work, of work. Okay. Yeah, proof yep. of work. So the work being the computational effort. Um, so then there's a alternative thing called proof of stake, right? Where it works. The, the, the term stake kind of is an escrow, right? Um, so instead of saying that I get to val to say that these sets of transactions are valid and getting added to the block. And for the right to do that, I have to do this proof of work. Mm. I do a proof of stake where I essentially put my money into a pot in the table, right? And say, okay, this is my stake. And I will process these transactions. And if they are valid and no one has any complaints about them, then great, I get my money back plus the reward. But if they're not, then I lose it, mm. right? So in, you're substituting computational effort for monetary, yep. you know, loss slash gain, yep. right? And and that's that's the name proof of stake, right? Uh, so you change the proof mechanism that is used in the consensus uh, by which all the nodes in the network, in the peer-to-peer -peer network, agree upon mm. who gets to decide what the next set of transactions is and whether or not they're valid. Very interesting. From yeah, and, and the reason why I mentioned that in this context is because when that happens, right, uh, it removes a lot of computational e effort, right? Because you you don't need to do all these quote unquote mundane yep. computations. Yep. Also has a very uh, nice effect that it won't be as polluting from all the energy consumption. Does but it come with its own problems? Well, it's not battle hardened enough. Ah, okay. Yeah. So proof of work, like it has more than a decade of proof that it is resilient to attacks. It's a decade very long in the development space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It is well in the development space, uh yeah, I would still say quite long. Okay. Um in the blockchain space, that is the gold standard because that's as long as it's been around. Well slightly ah, more. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Okay. From your point of view, when you are developing an application or let's say a decentralized application or service, what do you prioritize? Since there are so many things that uh, that might have potential issues, what do you personally prioritize? Or is it specific to the use case? I mean, yeah, maybe it is specific to the use case, but I would say in general, um, you have to have a good design from, uh, I, I guess, two key things. Uh, one is you, assuming present day decentralized application technology. So this may change, right? Um, one thing to be super sure about is that you're using your data storage and your computational uh, effort efficiently, right? Because you can accomplish the same task in several different ways, um, depending on how you decide to store the data, how you decide to process the data, mm. right? And you can sort of do more computation for less storage or vice versa, and you mm. have to find the balance. Yeah. Or you can even like say, I'm going to, for example, do parts of my application on-chain, meaning inside the smart contract, um, and then the rest of it, I ship it off off-chain, meaning I'm using a centralized application architecture. So I'll keep the critical parts of it that need to be decentralized on-chain. And then I'll have the 
um, ancillary parts, right? Um, that are less, uh, that require less proof, right? Mm. Uh, it doesn't need to be on an immutable ledger. And I'll put that off chain uh, using, you know, another technology that isn't a smart contract. Uh, and, and that, that concept is called a hybrid application. So like efficiency is ultra important because, you know, there are so many constraints in terms of costs, yep. um, in, in, in this space that you wouldn't even blink an eye at in the centralized space because it's, you know, orders of magnitude different. Um, that's one key thing. The other key thing is that, um, the, smart contract execution platform is uh is it's immutable right and and that gives you all these good uh properties but one of the bad things is that if you do make a mistake it's irreversible yep. right so whoever did that right gets away with it or you know gets cheated or whatever it, whatever the intent originally was mm. right and um, and, you know, like if you send money in your DBS account to, and, and you get the account number wrong, uh, within a certain time period, reasonable time period, you can ring up the bank and say, please reverse this transaction and mm. they'll generally do it for you. Um, you can't do that in, in any blockchain, right? For any transaction. And, and that applies to a smart contract interaction as well. So in this space, more so than, traditional application development where you can reverse transactions or the equivalent of transactions, um, you have to have a higher level of like testing of whether the code does what it's actually supposed to do. And a large part of that is a subset, but a significant subset of it is security or uh, auditing as well. Security, so, okay, what yeah. is that? So. Um, testing, software testing is just like regular software testing. Mm. Uh, you just have to adapt it for this new programming language and this new environment it's being run in. Nothing too much to talk about there. If you're, you know, uh, a software engineer who has already done this stuff, but with security audits, um, maybe it's, it's quite different because they are more prominent in the space. So, um, how are they different, right? So one of the things is uh, you have a higher tendency to to need to map out all the possible ways in which this code could execute, mm. right? And sort of define a set of rules or constraints uh, that should not be violated, uh, okay. right? And then you sort of pro programmatically generate tests so it's a different kind of testing. And, and you get that in traditional software development as well. It's just that in this space is more important. Yep. Right. So, uh, so you, so you have, um, and you have things like static analysis. I don't want to define that. <laughs> you also have things like fuzz testing, mm. um, so on and so forth. Yep. So like you get that category of things, uh, like additional level of testing. Then you also have like some interesting things that are more specific to, um, I would say applications that are specific to um, that or are common in the blockchain space. So, for example, um, you would you would do a thing. For example, if you have a smart contract 
and it keeps a a tally of the amount of each token that each user has mm. right then one th- uh, attacker might do something like screw with the the code in it yep. by transferring money into the contract that it wasn't expecting and it can't say no to yep right and then and then suddenly the tally doesn't add up and the contract freezes and everyone loses their funds right that that's actually yeah so you you get these kinds like you have like a list of hundreds of these kinds of uh s- smart contract specific vulner- vulnerabilities and you have a specific type of company or profession called mm-hmm. smart contract auditors who are specifically trained to oh, look at these things and and also sort of spot them as they crop up in the wild or yep. preemptively even yep. yeah so yeah th- this is like <laughs> there there are some aspects of it that are quite different yep so for yourself being in this space for a while what motivates you to continue to create or what excites you about okay so it's a two part what what motivates you to continue to create and what excites you about this space like in looking into the future or looking at right now what excites you i think like i perhaps have the same answer to both questions and something i alluded alluded to earlier on which was that this space is like a is like a green greenfield space mm-hmm. right there's so many things that are newly possible because of a removal of red tape uh newly possible because of the fundamental nature of the technology it being decentralized um the concept of an immutable uh ledger opens up all these possibilities and you know like just the amount of possible inventiveness that could go on there uh is is attractive right and you know and and you can sort of like see the horizon um you know in a lot of like technologies and like okay so you can see this being used to build blah 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 and then it'll attain the same level of uh what you could achieve with the existing technology in 5 years from now or something you could you can sort of see the horizon um in this space i haven't quite seen the horizon yet oh, like, that's it's interesting. it's still it's still like too far away but would the goal be to to try to to carve out or try to make this yeah so that's what i mean right like it's like a it's a green field right and you can do whatever you want um it's not like other spaces where there's kind of like a a, a well trodden path and you can maybe deviate a little bit from it oh interesting um this is like okay there's blank <laughs> go you know okay yeah. in in turning the conversation back to the development club and based in singapore You you mentioned initially about how before the club you saw that people were more fixated on I guess the price of it as opposed to the development. Yeah, speculative. The speculative price of aspects it. of it has that changed after starting the club, and how has your experience been? I guess running it initially and meeting new people. I would I would like to say that I've made a dent, um, but I to be honest I don't think so. Like the only practical thing that i've seen come out of it um is that a few people you know who have attended they have you know become uh more than acquaintances friends i chat with them that's nice um but a lot of them you know they were already like into this 
uh, angle of it is just that um, they kind of got together um, and got to know me, perhaps. Yeah. So that was nice. Um, but I would say in terms of absolute numbers of people that that would have impacted, it would be on the scale of 20. Okay. You know, it's not big. I am being brutally honest. Yeah. I'm not uh, I'm not making any grand claims here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but were these, let, let's say for these 20, were they like beginners or were they... Well, there were some there were some beginners, um, but they were already on that path. So it's not like I converted their thinking or anything, <laughs> right? Um, maybe I I would have contributed to their journey yep. in in getting to where they wanted to, and that's great, you know. Yep. But I wouldn't I wouldn't like to answer your question, you know, like did I impact the space? I would say. In Singapore, no, not really. Um, the bigger impact on the space is coming from, you know, whoever's doing this outside of doing Singapore, this, you know, because uh, everything's on the internet and, you know, you learn. Um, yeah. The, yeah. And, you know, this, this, this space, I also discovered that there were other groups, um, who are doing something similar to me, um, it, it, as part of this. Um, yeah. and that, that was great as well. You know, um, I even had one group that started that was started by someone who uh who attended one of my uh, sessions cool. which is great yeah um i have to check in on that i haven't <laughs> I, i'm i'm not i'm I, yeah like i said i haven't been keeping up with it properly for the past one and a half years yep yeah it's, it's kind of like um you know you lose that thing face to face because there's a lot of effort organizing events a lot right <laughs> enormous amount of effort like logistically and yep. you know that's discounting the prep of the actual content itself which is you know what i was thinking would be going into it naively yep 90 percent of the effort right but actually that was probably 10 20 percent of the effort right 80 percent of it was the logistics mm. um all the ancillary stuff that surrounded organizing an event and I've learned my lesson, you know, <laughs> and so I like, con I, I would like continuing creating the, the content, the educational material, right? Um, but in order to go through with the effort of all the ancillary stuff, the logistical stuff, to me, like for selfish reasons, right? I need that in-person thing. And this current lockdown is just not allowing for that. Mm. From your perspective, um, is Singapore a good place to to work on these technologies? Because I think I've I've read some yeah. articles of how, I guess the word is open and inviting, the like Singapore is with regards to blockchain technology and I guess the infrastructure it is. What are your thoughts on it? I would say Singapore is not a bad place, but it's not the best either. What are the pros and cons of it? Okay, so like. Ethereum Foundation is based in Zug, which is a part in uh, like ZUG, uh, part of Switzerland. Okay. And they have like a, I would say, decentralized form of government in the sense that each geographical area, like think of it as a town, I, I guess, with the surrounding areas, like the, the mayor of that town has much more autonomy than let's say Angmokyo versus Yochukan <laughs> has, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. Fair enough. They, and, and so they, they basically said, okay, this town says, I want to be the crypto valley, 
right? Mm. As opposed to Silicon Valley, right? I want to be the crypto value of Switzerland. And suddenly I've got all the regulations in place that allow that to happen. And, and, and to this day, you know, they haven't had any trouble, Mm. right? Um, when you think of it at a, like a bigger level, uh, like at a full government level, you have other countries like Gibraltar, which is a part of like, Geographically, it's in Spain, right, right at the bottom at the Mediterranean, um, and it's I think I I don't know exactly, but it's an autonomous territory that is linked in some way to mm. the UK. Okay, right, um, but it f- for most intents and purposes, it's 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 a, it's is it is its own <laughs> country. Okay, right, interesting, and it has its own laws, and it has a specific license for cryptocurrencies and it's very um i would say friendly right would so friendly in this case mean that there is less regulation the the regulation is drafted in such a way that it is uh actually drafted for cryptocurrency companies to operate um, and also it allows for the level of flexibility for the level of maturity of the technology Okay. Right. So, so when something is this new, uh, the knee-jerk reaction of most governments, including the Singapore government, is to regulate it as if it were part of the existing economy, a part of the existing rules, right? Because yep. that's how the legal and regulatory space operates in general. Yep. Right. They're like, what do we already know that is a part of uh, that is a, that that is similar to this? Yep. Okay, let's regulate it according to that rules. And then they would have some iterative improvements upon that, right? But they don't go for a clean slate and like say, okay, this is completely new. What do I do about this? Mm. And then you you know, sort of the think from first principles all the way up. And mm. I think like some jurisdictions, the two that I mentioned, have made some extent to do that. To some, to to a large extent, mm. they have you know done that, thinking from first principles. What would be a crypto regulation? Whereas like in Singapore, you still see it's friendlier, I would say, like, you know, some other countries, they just outright ban. Right. Um, so that hasn't happened here. But you also get these uh, like you also see like basically it being shoehorned into existing, mm. re- uh, you know, compliance and laws yep, and yep, et cetera. Yep. Um, yeah. And I mean, like if you, if you try to use crypto exchanges, right. And you try to deposit your SGD in it, there'll be a bunch of rules. Do not mention the word crypto. Do not mention the name of the exchange. Do not use the same amount that you're transferring more than once. You know, and you're like, this, this company is legal. Why, yep. why, why do they have to operate under this veil? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, and and the reason for that is because the laws are drafted in such a way that you know it is it gives enough leeway for those who do not believe in it to cast it aside, right? And 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 when something is so novel, right, that's enough, right? That's like sort of like a you're not illegal, but you're not legal either, and you're sitting in that in between space, and you're you you don't have any like certainty yep. to operate, yep. and. I would classify, you know, the current state as being that. So it's good enough. You can operate here without, you know, the threat of suddenly being 
you know, saying, okay, you're illegal, get out of mm-hmm. you know, these operations. Yep. That's not going to happen in Singapore, I believe. Well, I hope so. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's, it's not the best either. I've seen, I've seen other jurisdictions do it better. Interesting. In, in closing out this conversation, um, I'm curious to know your thoughts about data and privacy especially moving forward into the future like what are your current thoughts on how because with regards when 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 people talk about i guess centralized exchanges and uh i guess the quote-unquote amount of like power and control they have they talk about the amount of data they collect as well and we alluded to the fact that these companies yes the product is free quote-unquote but you essentially become the product and i guess the point i'm trying to make is that the ethos with regards to Bitcoin, Ethereum, and things of the like, things of nature in the space, it seems as though that it it is sort of empowering in a sense. Like it 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 gives you this sense of personal agency that it is your responsibility. You take care of it. If you you fuck up, you fuck up. But that's not the case with regards to let's say like a traditional bank, because you can undo it or some you 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 are just handing um in a sense you're just putting your money with the bank and the bank hand, hand quote unquote handling it for you. Reflecting back onto data, what are your thoughts on it now and moving forward? Do you think that people will be more cognizant of the amount of data that they are giving out? Do you think they'll be more private? Yeah. Um, I, w- I would say that uh, adoption is not widespread enough for people to have that level of awareness okay. right yet. Uh, it may come with time. So the average user who uses Facebook, right, probably puts their real location uh, inside the platform un- unwittingly all the time. So when you take a, a photograph with your phone, there's some metadata in it that basically contains your GPS coordinates. If you have GPS on, super high, highly accurate. Yep. Uh, and if you don't have GPS on, it's the location of your nearest cell phone tower, which is still pretty accurate. Pretty accurate, yeah. They, they, know, they know which street you're on at least, yep. right? Um, you know, and, and every time you upload a photo of Facebook, Facebook knows where you are, even though you never actually gave Facebook your geolocation permission. Like, you know, like, and the average user isn't aware of that. Right. And this is like a technology that's been around for so long. Facebook's been around for more than 10 years and the average user still doesn't know these things. Right. Um, maybe a larger percentage of people are being, becoming aware of this, but I would still say that even if they do know, they kind of don't care as well. So there's mm. like, there's, there's, there's like both ignorance and apathy going on here. It's like, why do I care what Facebook knows where my location is? Yep. So. Yeah. Um, but then if you uh, come, come back more specifically to your question, I think centralized exchanges, uh, and I emphasize the word centralized because there are also decentralized exchanges, which for which what I'm about to say doesn't apply. Um, they, whenever you buy, say, Bitcoin on, on, um, on a centralized exchange, right? Yep. You are not actually buying Bitcoin. Right, your they they're just maintaining their own database, not a blockchain database like just Postgres or yep. MySQL, whatever. Right, um, their own database and says, okay, this user, right, has this much Bitcoin. 
they just paid me this many SGD. Yep. So now they have this much Bitcoin. It's a ledger, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a centralized mutable ledger. The opposite of mutable Bitcoin. ledger. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Immutable, not changeable, mutable, changeable. changeable yeah. yeah. So um so that's what's happening, right? And only the point of time, at the point of time when you're doing a withdrawal in cryptocurrency, um, that point of time you're actually interacting with the blockchain. Right. And that point of time, then you're actually trading Bitcoin. Right. But the average uh, user doesn't really know, know this. Right. Yep. Or care about this. So we're coming back to the same combo, right? Like <laughs> apathy it, and ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Ex yeah. Exactly. So, <laughs> so, you know, they either don't care about it or they don't know about it. And when you have, and when you have that, right. Then, you know, like you're basically that user is primarily interacting with a centralized application. Yep. So they don't have any of these like decentralization, uh, aspects to it. They don't even have the pseudonymity. Yep. Um, you know, um, and I should sort of like have a sidebar here. Even if you're on a blockchain, remember that it's not private. Yep. By definition, every single transaction on the blockchain is on a public ledger, yep. right? Assuming that you're interacting with a public permissionless blockchain, such as Bitcoin or Ethereum, et cetera. Um, there are other types of blockchains. Let's not go into that. But the <laughs> default type of blockchain, the yep. main type of blockchain, anyone can see who has transacted with anyone else. Yep. Right? Um, so you have pseudonymity, right? Not anonymity. And as soon as someone connects an address, uh, a cryptocurrency address with a real world identity, right? So say, okay, this address is zero X, blah, 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 yep. belongs to Kevin. Yep. Then from then on, they know not only who you are and whenever you transact, how much they've transacted, yep. uh, how much you've transacted, but also who you, all your friends are. And then there are forensics analysis companies that actually just go through its whole trove of data and do something that's not too different from, um, from what you know probably people who scrape facebook data do right mm. and then they can just build up this wealth of information about your transactional network as opposed to your social network yep and there you go you you've recreated the same privacy Concern. nightmare scenario yeah, nightmare. <laughs> yeah so you kind of you kind of like can't I, I i don't think that this this technology uh enhances privacy in any way, if it, it, in in some aspects, opposite direction, yeah, yeah, it actually makes it easier for these analysis uh, to happen because it's all out in the open, yeah, um, and and uh, you know, like, but then the, to to some extent, that doesn't matter anyway because most of these companies will just sell your data, right, <laughs> and they don't even have to go through this process of de de pseudonymizing or de anonymizing your data, right? They could they just literally have the data like in raw form, right? <laughs> they don't have any probabilistic guessing to go on and so forth. Um, there is one technology uh, that is that is becoming popular in the blockchain space, although it exists outside of the blockchain space, mm. um, to protect your privacy. So one, like Bitcoin was the first blockchain and one of the earliest blockchains that sort of copy pasted Bitcoin to add its own features. Um, this, so this is not like a token, right? They didn't create a token on top of Bitcoin. It's like a new blockchain yep. itself. Um, was Zcash, right? Zcash. Okay. Yeah, like the letter Z cash. Um, I, I, that's their original name. I, I think they may have renamed 
I, 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 yeah, they they have they have renamed, but I don't know. I I can't recall the name. Sure. Anyway, um, they use something called zero knowledge proofs, which is some super complicated cryptographic uh, technology, which I don't fully understand myself. Um, to to say that when you transact on a blockchain, you have two categories of transaction, right? One is you can have your in the clear transaction. Another one, you can have a transaction that is encrypted using zero knowledge proofs. So the transaction is still in public in, in, on the ledger, right? And it's still visible to anyone. It's just that it's garbled. And so long as you're not party to those, that, that, that transaction, you can't actually read that. Mm-mm. But they've done it in such, the zero knowledge proofs things, you know, they, they're, they're done in a smart way such that even though the ledger as a whole, parts of it are sort of invisible, they can still prove when you try to spend that money that you do actually own it. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's my, it's mind boggling, right? So, uh, that has existed for a long time, right? And someone, uh, well, a few different people have sort of ported that, that the logic that does zero knowledge proofs into smart contracts. And then you suddenly got this new crazy thing going on. So, for example, if you wanted to have voting happen on a blockchain using decentralized governance, and let's say it was a shareholder meeting, you don't, uh, in most cases, you don't need privacy for that. So anyone can see who has voted for what, yep, yep. right? Then fine, yep. you know, uh, just use a regular transaction, right? Um, but then let's say you have like an election uh, for, you know, a politician, yep. right? You want to keep your vote private. Yep. And that's because that's how the thing that you're currently yep. modeling, your vote has to be private and you don't want people to know who you voted for, etc. Right. So that expectation of complete privacy is there. So then you say, okay, so then in that case, I need to use this technology and add that to my smart contract such that I can have just expose the total number of people who voted for, say, each candidate or each option in the ballot sheet, right, without actually revealing who has voted for each one, which would be the default, Yep. right? And that's that's uh that's an interesting application. That's a right? use case of it. Yeah. So that technology um has to become or, or or a technology that accomplishes something similar, right? Would have to become more widespread and commonplace in order for that to flourish, right? And in order for like, you know, to have a public blockchain with actual privacy. Yep. Um I don't, I don't, I don't know how far away that is, but one of the limiting factors is that that, uh, means that that smart contract becomes very heavy to compute. So it's expensive to interact with. Mm. And then you have all these scalability problems yep. that already we were there about, compounded. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so this, this conversation has been highly self-referential. So <laughs> you've got, you, yeah, you, you've guided it quite well. But, but sounds, sounds as though because. Yeah. You talked about the the security aspect, and let's say if the the mission of someone is to create something that's public facing and mm-hmm. interacting, let's say for governance or elections, for for example, it ha- it really has to be battle tested because you wouldn't want something like this to be rolled out and to be the victim of certain vulnerabilities that you might not have anticipated because that would affect 
the the I guess the cause of a country or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So at, at, there's like two levels for this, right? One is the underlying cryptography, uh, like what algorithms you use for your encryption, etc. Um, and then there's another level where your smart contracts themselves need to be audited for various vulnerabilities. But yeah, yeah. Um, both both apply. Yeah. This has been a mind-boggling <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even get to talk about uh, non-blockchain stuff in the end. <laughs> One last point. Yeah. I saw on a blog post of yours that you were planting trees. Ah, okay. So we will talk about a non-blockchain thing. Yeah. That, that, that is... Which tree? Which, which one? I know there was a blog post and uh, there were three specific trees. Oh yeah, okay. So that's, it could that, be a while back. That was a uh, N Parks thing. Yeah, National so Parks. Could could you speak to that? And is it is it something of interest to you? Why or what what led to you making that decision to to want to take part in it? Mm. Well, okay. So yeah, this is completely different. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so there's there's a. I mean, if you look at the current statistics and numbers, the trends that we're headed towards, um, basically, uh, in, if you look at Singapore, about, I would say most of the CBD and most of East Coast will be underwater by 2050, right? 2050. Yeah, that's, 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 that's the science. So <laughs> that's, that's where the numbers are, are leading us, okay. right? And think about what would happen to Singapore if that didn't happen. If, you know, like, okay, so right now, and, and, and this, by the way, like, uh, if you watch the National Day rally in, I can't remember what year, I think it may have been 2019. I can't remember. Okay. There's, there's literally Lee Sien Lung. He's standing there on, on, in his rally, pointing to a map of Singapore, showing these are the parts of Singapore that be underwater. Jesus. And that's where I got this information. <laughs> Right. I'm like, this is crazy. And he said, okay, but we've got it under control. We're going to build like all of these barriers and, and, and all of that to keep yep. this stuff, uh, out of it. The, all the train stations and anything with the underground tunnel will be raised from two meters above sea level to four or whatever it is, because that's how much we predict the rise will be. Yep. And so Singapore's land that was so preciously reclaimed yep. will remain above water. <laughs> yep. Um, so that's great, but you know, <laughs> Only Singapore and maybe a handful of other really rich city states can afford to do that for its entire country. You're going to see large swathes of the world like going completely underwater mm -hmm. and large swathes of the world, unfortunately, for historical and uh, practical reasons, live along the coast. Yep. Right? The majority of the human population lives in coastal areas, yep. right? If I'm not mistaken, it's like two thirds of the population at least. So two thirds of the population is going to become, you know, flooded out of their Submerged, homes yeah yeah uh so i mean i've i've known about climate change for a while but you know the severity of it has hit home recently so i do a bunch of things um to sort of mitigate that uh so like every month i so first it started off with slacktivism Right. So activism was oh, okay. slack. So portmanteau of the two. So I started off with slacktivism, uh, where I would just, uh, I think, um, there's, I should know the name of, of, of the things I donate to. Um, so there's project Vesta or Vespa. I can't remember. There's this thing, there's this new technology where they found a particular type of rock where they grind it up and it can absorb huge amounts of carbon, Ooh. um, from, from the ocean. 
Um, and so I give them a hundred bucks a month. Um, there's another one. I think it started out of Iceland, uh, where they use geothermal power to pump carbon dioxide back underground. And they have a particular, uh, rock called basalt. Uh, so it literally becomes carbon crystals stuck within this very porous rock. And it's supposed to last there for, um, a hun- like hundreds or thousands of years. I can't remember. Yep. Um, but basically long enough for it to be considered permanent to resolve this uh, crisis. Yep. <laughs> uh, yep. Or outlive this crisis if yep. it does happen. Um, so I give them a hundred bucks a month. Yeah. And then there's also uh, Project Ren, W-R-E-N. Uh, so that's tree planting and monitoring mm-hmm. of deforestation. So I also give them, I think, also a hundred bucks a month. So a, a bunch of things like that. Um, so that's my selectivism, right? So it was just like, okay, I opened up my wallet. I did my thing. <laughs> yeah. And I decided to, you know, take things a bit more like personally, right? So like actually walk the talk. So first thing I did was, you know, take your water bottle so I don't use plastic. No more plastic gotcha. whenever possible. Yep. So, you know, I don't uh, tap out anything yep. from, from anywhere. If I do, I bring my own container. Mm. So like when I go to Mr. Bean, my only, like I'm literally the only guy who'll come up there with a bowl, like a glass container saying, Hey, fill this up. <laughs> you know, I do that at the Hawker Center as well. And they, they, they usually just stare at me for, <laughs> Enough for me to feel awkward, but not long enough for me to like prompt them to like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. So they do that. Uh, Yeah. So they. they, So one thing led to another. Yeah. One thing. Yeah. And what else do I do? Ah, yes. So I also do composting. It's it's quite hard to do in apartment. Um, So I bought a couple of bins designed uh, purposely for that. Because if you live, you know, uh, in a, like a house with a garden outside, you can yep. just sort of just do what is called um, aerobic decomposition. Or <laughs> so that's where you just put it in a pile and it decomposes. Yep. But uh, that's that requires soil. Yep. Firstly, for the stuff to drain into, and secondly, it also requires uh, you know lots of ventilation, which you can't achieve in an apartment. You, yep. It needs to be outdoors. Yep. Otherwise, basically, your house is going to stink. Yeah. Right. So I got these bins, I got a special type of, uh, I think it's like uh, when you brew beer, you have the leftover um, husks and mm, like the cereal grains yep. um, and whatever's left over. So it has like some microbes in it and also like a spray. So you combine the two, it's called Bokashi, uh, some nice Japanese name, yeah. word. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's like a special blend of, of microbes that allow, uh, anaerobic decomposition. So you basically, uh, put it in a bin, a uh, special bin, which has yep. a tap at the bottom to allow you oh, to drain the garbage juice interesting. out. Technical term for it being leachate, like leach <laughs> ATE. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you, so long as you regularly drain that and you keep putting in the microbes, the right type of microbes, it doesn't, uh, smell, uh, it isn't, it has a manageable smell. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so sounds so, co- you don't sound too convincing. <laughs> I, I won't lie. There is, there is a smell, but yeah. it's not, it's not pungent, right? It's, it's there if, if you, but if you like sort of put it, uh, under your sink and keep the, the door shut. As long as the door doesn't open, you can't, you know, you, you won't, you won't notice it. Yep. And then you bring it out and, and drain it. And then you bring it back in yep. or you drain it straight into, uh, you know, the plumbing or whatever. Yep. Yeah. And what else? 
Um, there are a few more things. <laughs> oh, switch, I switched, comp I saw this uh, article about uh, solar farms. So like the, in, in Singapore. Yep. So there's, uh, I think um, I signed up quite a while ago, but uh, apparently Singapore is home to the, if I'm not mistaken, third largest floating solar farm. I think I read world. that article somewhere. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it just came out like yep. two, three days ago, yep. right? Uh, and you switched to the supplier or something? So I switched to the supplier because I heard that they won a tender for the biggest contract to date to install uh, a rooftop solar on HDBs. That's wow. So I was like, Santiap. Right, that's the name of it. So I was like, okay, I'm I'm giving them their money instead of, you know, by default your power in Singapore is uh, from burning natural gas, right? Yep. So I picked the hundred percent solar power um, option, which was surprisingly not that much more expensive. It was mm. like one percent extra or something. That's <laughs> negligible. What yeah. it worked out for, I was like, I'll <laughs> I'm happy to pay yeah. a few yep. cents extra. Yep. Basically. Yep. Um, yeah. So I I did that. Um, and then the tree planting. Yeah. So that was one thing where I, I got to, I, I found this, uh, program organized by N Parks. Mm. Um, they doing this one million tree planting thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they basically organized this thing where I, I mean, did you read the, the full article? I like, skimmed. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, there's like, a part of it that makes me feel like I did something good, but then there's a part of me that feels that it, it's it's like a like a, a PR stunt as well. Mm, oh no! You know, so like basically, when you dig soil in Singapore, that's in urban areas, is typically clay soil, really difficult to dig, right? Okay, like this, you know, orange stuff that's hard, hard halfway to brick. Right. If you go out to the forest or whatever, it's normal soil, yep. which is a mix of clay and sand and, 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 uh, she starts with an H. Um, there's another, there's three types of soil. Um, but basically the decomposing matter and you mix them all together and you get different grades of brown soil, yep, essentially. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, but, but, uh, the cheapest type of soil, at least in Singapore, seems to be clay. Right. And, uh, and when you are in like, uh, an estate, an uh, urban estate, they have these strips of land that's punctuating the concrete and the tarmac. Mm -hmm. Right. And then they have like a grass strip, maybe some trees if you're lucky. Yeah. So <laughs> that soil is predominantly clay and it's mm. really hard to dig. Mm. Right. Uh, I've tried it before. <laughs> and so what they do is they get these uh, construction workers, right, to mm. pre dig the soil. Right. Okay. And then they refill it again with the same soil. And then the volunteers, the Singaporeans like myself, who come to that, they dig the soil that's already been pre-dug. <laughs> There's something wrong with the sentence you just said. <laughs> Yeah, so I was like, it, it's it's a bit of like a Sisyphean task, right? So they dig the soil and then instead of just doing the thing, they put it back. Yeah. So, I mean, to some extent, like, I feel like I did something good because without my support, uh, you know, like this program wouldn't get as much prominence or awareness. But then to some extent, I feel like it's a charade, yeah. you know? They could have easily done done it much faster without you know me, yep. right? 
and then uh and then the and the thing that sort of like hammered it hammered the point back home was uh halfway i wouldn't say halfway through like 90% of the way through uh it started to drizzle right and then so okay. the end parks volunteered following the rules list like basically sent us home yep. uh and then you know these construction workers uh these foreign laborers they would have to fill in the soil like continue working because they had operated under a different set of rules right yeah. um safety regulation like uh you know it's i was oh, like that's depressing <laughs> yeah it's 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 kind of like two tiers of yeah it it's but i mean it is it is what it is right like you've known we've known in singapore for a long time there's this sort of like you know if you're a citizen you're here and if you're not yep. you're here yep. and if you're different levels of here depending on which nationality you come mm. from you know like malaysians are right at the top and then like maybe if you're from bangladesh is right at mm. the bottom you know it's like you you, you know that it's like almost like an open secret no one really mm. talks about it but yeah you you like if i i was like if i ever do that again i'm going to sort of uh cuz i only did it once unfortunately time yeah. um but uh if i ever did it again i would you know bring bring them some like food or something yeah, yeah. you know like give give it give away you know show them my gratitude um yeah <laughs> But but it does sound like a charade, like like what you mentioned. Yeah, I but think it's I mean, I do agree with the end goal. Mm. Like, okay, so the end goal is that they're going to build plant a million trees, and they're going to do it with foreign laborers, laborers, yep. right? Um, but what they're using Singaporeans for, right, is the awareness, right? Because these programs won't get funded, and people are probably going to be caught up in a cycle of misinformation or whatever, yep. right? If if they if they if they don't themselves like sort of have boots on the ground doing these things and knowing what they're doing it for so the more people that are exposed to this right uh that they actually are people that are your neighbors or your friends or your family right that would happen right you know but if let's say this group of people foreigners who are largely siloed away from yeah. the local population if you want to put it that way mm-hmm. right that's not going to bridge the gap in terms of awareness right then then they're not going to you know we're not going to hear about like you know n- national parks tree planting exercises the 1 million trees initiative right mm. because i did it maybe you know well, well with this podcast certainly hopefully a few people what's what's the uh, listenership of this podcast i'll tell you after this okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah Yeah, it's uh it's uh, secured by zero knowledge proof. <laughs> um but if you think they could have for perhaps a larger more macro problem as to how we would tackle such issues because I'm sure there are better ways of running something like this. Yeah, yeah, but the 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 flip side of it is if that if you didn't have this stratification of society then things wouldn't be as cheap in Singapore, right? The cost mm-hmm. of living in Singapore is tremendous like contrary to popular it, belief is actually quite cheap it's, it right is, relative yeah. to your income level yep and and one of the key reasons for that is because we have extremely cheap labor from overseas mm. that are willing to work for a wage that is significantly higher than what they would earn at home yep. but still significantly lower than what you would have to pay a singaporean in to do the same work mm. right 
and and so kind of like it's like labor arbitrage and geographical arbitrage all rolled into one it's a very smart system from an economic point of view yep. but then it also leaves you with a bit of philosophical you know backlash <laughs> yeah like you 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 wonder like what is what is the right balance yep. you know and it's it's hard to I'm not I'm not an economist and I'm not a sociologist so like I'm unqualified to speak about these things but yep. I guess I can say how I feel when I you know uh encounter or f- experience these things firsthand yeah. and I think because of the recent crisis I think a larger spotlight has 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 been placed upon conversations such as these that traditionally would be swept I guess under the rug or people would just turn a blind eye towards and I guess more emphasis has been placed on I guess the plight really because how sustainable is it really to just rely on cheaper and cheaper labor like ah. yes there is an arbitrage to it but yeah as the as the world progresses I think there will come a certain point where if we don't tackle the issue right now I think it's gonna it's gonna come as a shock in the future I actually think the trend that the world is on is actually exacerbating inequality mm-hmm. so the trend isn't towards equalization at the moment. Not at the all. trend is is to in, is in fact in the opposite direction. Mm. Um, like while the lockdown and the closure of the borders, or I should say, uh, near closure of the borders, mm-hmm. has sort of like brought home the point. Uh, like for example, the average renovation. How long has it been delayed? Yep. You know. Uh, I see outside my house, you know, the, you know, the, the bus stop. Usually I will see 10 cigarette butts. Now I see more than a hundred, you know, mm-hmm. it's because there's less foreign laborers, right? Yep. And, yep. and Singaporeans clearly aren't cleaning up after yep. themselves. Yep. You know, they're, they're doing reliance on it. Yeah. Exactly. It's like somebody else's problem, you know, and like to some extent, the, the problem has persisted the problem and this window of the lockdown has sort of, given us the opportunity to see it more clearly if we're not blinkered, right? Mm. So the person who I assume is, you know, doesn't care or think about these things, which maybe is the majority of the population, is going to continue to litter despite the fact that there is less, uh, that the litter is being picked up less often. Yep. Right. Um, it's, it's, and, and it's a sad fact to see it like, you know, it's like a, it's, it's like an experiment that you're observing and, you know, not just observing, but also being affected by yep. in real time. Yep. So as we're, as we're experiencing this, we're seeing, you know, like, uh, like sort of our true nature being less and less hidden. And then mm. you wanna you wanna kind of see like what if the tap got completely turned off, you know? Would we would we then like literally swim in our own waste? You know, like could, that could happen, you know. Um, but the tap hasn't been completely turned off, and so therefore society is still functional. But you still you, it's sort of has a ten percent dysfunctionality almost yes. <laughs> enough for you to see the threat of it's you an interesting know, thought experiment yeah <laughs> yeah it's but that's the point right it's not just a thought experiment it's happening right in front of you right um yeah so lots to lots to think about <laughs> you know i wanted to end with this yeah. question so are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future 
don't know. I I would I would say pessimistic. <laughs> pessimistic. Pessimistic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I I would say cetris paribus. So like all else being equal, um, human nature is selfish, right? And and you know all the examples I've spoken about from game theory to you know uh you know like this stratification of society yep. and not my problem yep. attitudes like they're all examples of you know how everyone acts for their own self-interest yep. and right now the, if everyone does act in their own self-interest it's almost like mutually mutually assured destruction yep. the thing is that we have all these laws and and norms in place in society that ensure that a it is invisible or only slightly visible mm. right and b uh the degradation happens slowly mm. right so it's almost like you're the frog who's being boiled alive in water doesn't realize it until it's too hot yep right um that's a very sick analogy i don't know who was the first one to think about it <laughs> but but it but you know like i i feel that you know like let, let's just take the example of climate change right so every day we do these things that are negative externalities right so if you drive a car or you take a taxi instead of taking public transport you know by and large you're driving your your uh, contributing fuel, to it yeah. right if you uh if you have a plastic cup from a takeaway or or, or you know you get your your food delivered to your house and you have a stack, a stack of boxes <laughs> you know all of that right is contributing let's say each thing is contributing like a, a hundredth of a millimeter of singapore submerging mm. right but you know you can get away with it so people just continue doing it right so you know and then some people like even if confronted with the facts so it's not just ignorance they're just you know that's apathy right but some people don't they don't even want to know right you no know, it's like they'll they'll just brush it off as you know f- fake news or whatever yep. you know yep. and and then there's also at a at a bigger scale there's also like a lot of um corporate interests mm yes from uh i guess people with a lot of money enough money to buy opinions mm. and they will they will um they will sell people on the idea that hey this is actually not real you know and and you and you see that uh you see that in the news all the time people are getting like all these corporations are getting exposed but they somehow still continue doing it they just yep. find another way because yep. and, and like this comes back to the sort of like the the concept of where the incentives are aligned right so the incentives are currently aligned to whoever has the most capital yep and whoever has the most capital at the moment has their own self interest in heart to continue the current system yep. for their own profit. Yep. And they they clearly have enough money to migrate to somewhere that's more than 10 meters above sea level <laughs> yep. and live comfortably for the rest of their lives and that's what they care about. Yep. Right? Um, you know, they, and and you know, so what if the all the coastal cities are submerged? You yeah. know, like it's kind of like sick to think about, but that is yeah, that's that's what makes me feel pessimistic. Yeah. Um I hope I'm wrong. I sincerely hope I'm wrong. Uh, day to day I'm much more optimistic than this. 
I have to say. <laughs> I have let you down a yeah. pessimistic path. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but, it, but if if you ask me to think think long term, yeah. I yeah, and and I think that that kind of does sum it up, right? Like people are optimistic in the short term, but then you know they don't think about the long term, and so you know they just continue business as usual, and so mm. that's like another reason which I myself am susceptible to yep. as well, right? But you I know? guess it's also part of human nature to. It's like be the blinkers you put on yourself. That as well, and to be pessimistic because I, I believe asking people from I guess sixty seventies about how they feel about the turn of the century, they will be pessimistic as well. But I guess we are still alive. But I guess it, it really depends on how far into the future. What is we're your talking bar about. of success? We are still alive. Yeah, you know how how far into the future we're talking about. Yeah, really. Next yeah. year, probably, but 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, it's anyone's guess, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I have mentioned the, the phrase inflection point quite a few times before. So maybe there is an inflection point in corporate interests. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe there is. I can't predict the future. Maybe there is an inflection point in human nature, you know. <laughs> and so we decide to align ourselves for mutually assured non-destruction. Yeah, mutually yeah. assured non-destruction. <laughs> Yeah, like may, maybe that happens, right? And then there's only a few bad actors, you know, uh, who are still in. Yeah, that could happen, right? Uh, but that's not the trend that I'm seeing right now. Yeah. Fair enough. Before we close, is there anything else you would like to talk about? This is something maybe for another conversation. Uh, we don't have to do a podcast. I could just talk to you um, after this. In fact, uh, yeah, we could talk about NFTs. Yeah, but that's a that's a whole nother um, rabbit hole. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's not dive in that that one now. We'll dive into that later. Yeah. Where can people find your work, or where can people reach out to you? Do you do? Are you open or willing for for people to reach out to you to talk about such things? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So the easiest way to find me online is if you go to my website, uh, bguiz.com. BGUIZ.com. Okay. Bravo Golf Uniform India Zulu. Oh, you have to remember. <laughs> okay. We all did NS, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, and and so uh it's it's my personal blog, uh, and you'll find a link to all my social media at the top. Um, if you want to learn more specifically about blockchain, I would say there are a few avenues because um, I wear several hats. Uh, the the DAPS Dev Club, which we talked about before, that's dappsdev.org. Um, yeah, it's uh, material uh, mostly designed for software engineers or mm. you want to learn coding for decentralized applications. Um, there's also developers.rsk.co. Um, that's, that's, uh, one of the things that I do at my job. So the information site about RSK, uh, more technically oriented as the name implies. Um, and if you're not, uh, if you're, uh, let's say, uh, you know, like don't, don't, uh, want to code or you just want to learn about blockchain in general, there's a lot of, um, I have some guest lectures at SMU. Mm. Uh, I just ran one last week. One, uh, so go sign up. Um, just look for, um, the, yeah, the, the name of the course, <laughs> the name of the course changed. Uh, it's, it's blockchain for business, I believe. And there's a series of six modules. So ah. I teach, uh, two, I teach in two of them. Yep. 
Is it yeah. like an open class that anyone can just sign up or is it specifically for people in SMU? Oh, uh, it's it's not it's an adult learning program. It's not an SMU student thing. Gotcha. So yeah, anyone can sign up. It's under the Skills Future program. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then uh, stay tuned for next year. There will be a diploma in blockchain um, uh, yet to be announced. Yep. Um, so you'll hear from me when that happens. Is it um, like a tertiary level? or That will be tertiary level. Yes. Uh, yeah. It, as the name implies, diploma. Um, and uh, I think that will probably start, and uh, if not end of this year, early next year. Fantastic. Um, and that will be coding focused as well. Yeah. All right. This has been a mind-boggling yet very interesting conversation. Thank you well, for your time, Brendan. No, not at all. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired. If you enjoyed what you heard thus far, do give us a follow on Instagram. And don't forget to share and subscribe. Stay tuned for the next episode.